This episode is brought to you by the Enneagram 5 community. Join our free community to get early access to episodes, attend live community events, and meet other Enneagram 5s like you. Visit the link in the description to learn more. We'll see you over there. So we're talking about religion and spirituality, and there's this quote by Richard Feynman that I feel like really sets the tone for the conversation well. Okay. And it's, I would rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. Yes. I love that. I want that tattooed on my body. It's hard for me to start this conversation. I've got to admit, like I, you know, we've talked about on the show earlier. Initially, I was very hesitant to have this conversation. Yeah. And it wasn't because of the nature or the content of the conversation. I enjoyed talking about this stuff. Yeah. It was more about the perceived personal fallout that might happen as a result of me saying all this stuff in a public setting. Yeah. Mainly just because it's been much more of a private thing for me, and it's not something that I have really wanted to share broadly. But I feel like the timing is right with not just with us, but with like the show. And it gives so much context because we're going to share our stories of growing up in religion and leaving religion and, and everything thereafter. It was such an integral part of our experience as human beings and as fives that Knowing that story really helps frame a lot of our other conversations and gives a lot of good context. And so I think it's important to tell this part of our story. I want to make sure that we are, we're being very clear here that this is descriptive, not prescriptive. Yes. So we, we're, we're telling our story. We are definitely not trying to convince anyone of anything and definitely not trying to convince anyone to believe anything or not believe anything. I think that it's really important to, and I I feel like, you know, as fives, we're probably more inclined to be this way naturally, but I feel like it's really important to have a a no pressure conversation around this stuff so that we can be open to the things that we're talking about. And so no matter where you are on your journey of faith, religion, spirituality, none of the above, you're welcome here and we're not going to bash you. Right. But at the same time, I want to also be very clear that we're not going to hold anything back. So we, this is our very much uh, raw unscripted uh, <laughs> first-person account of our stories. Well, a little scripted. Well, uh, outlined. We, <laughs> we, have, ha- we, we have outlined it. Yes. Yeah, we had to. <laughs> Otherwise, There's we, no way I'm remembering yeah, all of the yeah. most traumatic times of my life uh, <laughs> just the off the place. top of my head. <laughs> um, so some of it might be hard to hear for some people, and but we encourage you to stick around as long as you can. And yeah, if keep you can, an open mind. Yeah, try to keep an open mind. And if not, that's perfectly okay too. Yeah, cool. All right. So where do we want to start? Let's start with you, Cody. Start with mine. All right. I have to say your name because apparently <laughs> our voices sound the same. Our, our voices. We've learned that in the first season. I don't think that they do. Um, they are very similar tone, and, but I mean, we talk so differently. So that's may, what I think, I, yeah. we also haven't really put out a lot of videos. That's true. Yeah. We need so, to do more of that. More of that is coming in yeah. case you're wondering. 
Uh, so Cody. Yeah. Cody, the five wing six. <laughs> Let's start with you. Uh, what was it like growing up as a five in religion? Did you find it hard, easy to engage with growing up? Well, so my parents were never super religious when I was a kid. So my mom grew up Methodist and my dad was in the Pentecostal movement. So my mom remained fond of her religious upbringing because generally Methodists are kind of warm and fuzzy <laughs> and kind of, you know, light in many ways. My dad couldn't get away fast enough as a five at the core charismatic type of things don't typically resonate. We might have listeners that are, and I would love to hear from you, actually. Mm. It didn't resonate with me, didn't resonate with my brother, didn't resonate with my dad, and we were all fives. Um, but when I was around nine years old, my mom had found out she had cancer, and so that definitely probably had my parents reevaluating life in light of death. And it was around this time that some family friends told us that their uncle was starting a church in their living room. And my mom decided to give it a shot. She took us every week to that living room and we sat with like 20 people and did the thing. And they had uh, like children's time in, in the basement. I remember that. I remember sitting uh, the the person who was trying to be the pastor at that time is sitting in his boat because <laughs> it was comfortable. There was automatic seating. I don't know. Random memories. But yeah, they invited us. We went. Um, it took a while for my dad to come with us, though. So that was one thing I do remember when I was a kid. I've never really talked to him about that, but I do remember that. And I got invited to sing on Sunday mornings in the worship band at like 10 years old and was up there. And it was the first time I've, I had ever done anything like that. It was before I knew how to play guitar. That was anything that I had ever done musically. That was the first time. And uh, it was around that time that my dad began attending and helping in the sound booth. And, you know, looking back, I see that he was probably only there at first because I was there and I was singing. But I remember over time, he really loved that. And he started getting involved. And that was like his way of being like, I'm here, I'm in church, I'm with my family, but I have this thing that's like very technical and I can do it with my hands. And, you know, because he was yep. essentially an electrician and, <laughs> and does those kinds of things and works on instruments in a nuclear plant. So like that was, that was his thing. And so it was kind of a, at least somewhat close to his world. And he really loved that. But I mean, at that point we were all entrenched, right? So we were, we were going. And um, that's- how old, how old were you about this time? Nine, 10 years old. And I also, I mean, the, the worship leader started giving free guitar lessons. That's where I started to learn guitar. Me, my mom, and my dad all took guitar lessons at the same time. And I'm the only one who kept going. <laughs> I think out of that entire group of people, I'm probably the only one who kept playing music at all. And I was the worst one. There was a video. My dad would set up a camera and and show the show the so he would remember the lessons or he could see them later and try to go over them. And there was all, it was so funny because you know it'd be everybody play the chord G and they'd go around the circle and they'd get to me and you'd see like a visceral reaction on his face every time I try to play a chord and he'd be like, "That's so good," <laughs> and he'd make this like flinched face you know it was so bad and i it took me a long time it, but it wasn't until i had i had all the tools i just taught myself but music came from in the church for me so that was my foundation in the very beginning yeah i i will say that is one thing that i found was good about growing up in church is it provides you with some opportunities to explore different passions that you might not necessarily have the same, be able to do in different contexts. Sure. Right. So I got really into music and filmmaking even, mm -hmm. and speaking, communicating in front of people. I got into that because of the way that I grew up in church. 
Yeah. And I do have some fond memories of playing and singing in choir and well, really it was, it wasn't speaking. It was teaching. I got to teach stuff. And so, yeah, yeah, that I will get to that later, but that definitely plays a part in my story as well. So, you know, three buildings later, we could get from the the living room to a small building and we still attended the same church for a long time. Mm -hmm. It had grown a lot as a teenager. I helped paint the walls. I helped lay the flooring, like for the, the main building that they're, now in even still today but one day there was an incident where i remember this very clearly me and like two other guys were wrestling in the floor of the youth group or the youth room like really wrestling keep in mind we were like family friends like we knew each other but we had somehow gotten into a fight where we were all wrestling and one of them kicked my knee so hard that my kneecap went into the inside of my <sighs> leg no 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 <laughs> I was on crutches for weeks and my mom, when she confronted them and asked why this behavior was allowed to happen. We need to put a sentry warning in front of that. <laughs> Cause I've just, I've dislocated my knee four times. And oh that my just God. Like, like it makes me want to oh, throw up. Yeah. It's awful. It's a terrible feeling, yeah. but uh, luckily I didn't tear anything permanently, but I might have still problems from that though. I don't know. My knee is you should get that looked at probably getting older. <laughs> But when she confronted them, they, their, uh, and the behavior and why it was allowed to happen, they responded with boys will be boys, that sentiment, uh, which infuriated my mom. Yeah. And I wasn't allowed to go to youth group anymore. <laughs> That's when that ended. <laughs> but eventually I began attending a Methodist church and started their first youth worship band because I'd already done it once, kind of, when I was 13. At this point, I had been like 14 or 15. And so I kind of just kind of slipped right into the same the mo- same mode there and actually did it in multiple Methodist churches at that time. And by the time I was 16, I think I had planted new services in three different churches, which is crazy. But I started figuring out, maybe I have a knack for that, you know, and that that very much influenced my move forward um, a couple years later. But I felt like I'd found my purpose. I knew I was on the right path, a path laid before me by God himself. And I stuck to that path with all the vigor and pomp one can muster. But it was around this time that I also started a band. We played constantly. I wrote Christian songs and wanted to be a Christian band because I knew that was the proper thing to do. And when we even got signed to a small Christian label a couple years later, that would later be one of my first major disappointments and heartbreak um, I would experience from Christians, though, I think. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. When did you change your name? Nope, we're not. <laughs> I I uh, have the ability to edit this podcast, and uh, that's not going to get in there. <laughs> Nobody's finding that song, that music. <laughs> if you were super sleuths, you could find my Robin Sparkles. Um, yes. <laughs> um, I'll slip it to you on the DL. <laughs> yeah, don't DM Josiah. He will tell you. He loves telling everybody. Um <laughs> But yeah, so I still remember the day we signed that contract, though, because we were so hopeful, so excited for the future, stars in our eyes, completely blind to any red flags that might exist at that point. And we plunged headfirst into it without like all the way in. And um, the new label, I mean, they flew us to Florida. We had a we had a photo shoot with a renowned photographer that had photos that landed on the cover of magazines like Rolling Stone, like we thought we were hot shit. Wow. Like we, we were like, we made it. We're done. Like we, who needs college? 
Right. So I graduated high school and decided to pursue music and not go to college for like a year or whatever it was. I had a record deal and an impending uh, tour in the works. I didn't feel the need to go to college. So I put it off to see how it all play out. But soon after we toured the country, we played in clubs and bars and parks and festivals and churches, all the things we actually, <laughs> ironically, we would sleep in floors of bars and stuff all the time. Cause it was kind of like a, they, they, <laughs> they labeled it as like a, like a mission tour. Cause it was like Christian still, but it was like the Christian warp tour. <laughs> so there was like eight or eight bands or so that were all like pretty hardcore musically, like music style wise. And at that time we were kind of more of a rock band. So it was like, we fit in a little bit. So we would play in all different types of venues because we wanted to reach the lost. And so we would play in places that weren't necessarily always churches, but we would play in churches to raise money just so we could play in the places that wouldn't pay us like church, like bars and stuff. So you had to balance it out. And so there were some places, sometimes the tour manager would not have anywhere for us to sleep and we would sleep in the bar. Like I remember that going to sleep on an air mattress, looking up at like the, 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 the what's that called? The not led lights, the, the, the beer lights that you oh, hang yeah. on the wall. Yeah. And so I remember that like literally sleeping almost underneath a pool table. <laughs> so some of those memories are actually really not that bad. I, I, I really enjoyed meeting everybody on that tour but I, I never fully resonated, even at that point in my life, with this idea that I was being used for a greater ulterior motive. Mm. Why couldn't I just play music and let that be the motive? But it never was. It was always this other thing that was going on, but they would mask it and kind of hide it in the middle of what all was going on, right? They'd make you think you're at the Warp Tour and then sneak Jesus in there. They'd Jesus juke <laughs> you, as they say. <laughs> but, you know, we got home. We started making an album. We started, we dove right into the studio. That was super fun. All these songs we've been playing for years since I was like 15, we were getting to hear them in a real studio setting for the first time and do this stuff. And all of a sudden we were like being forced to not do anything. And because we were in a contract, we couldn't release music. They wouldn't release our music. They basically just kept putting us on the back burner. We knew something was going on. We didn't know what it was. Found out that they were basically going bankrupt and didn't tell us. So uh, they couldn't make our album because they couldn't afford to. And so they were doing all these other things. Like, I don't know if you remember um, the Curves. Do you remember that? It was the Christian aerobics for women. Oh, yeah. 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 So they made the music for that because okay. it paid the bills. Okay. Right. And it was stuff like that they were doing. And they weren't and instead weren't doing the stuff for us or anybody else that they had signed, I guess, at that point. I don't know who else they had. So we sat on our hands essentially for about a year. And before any of that happened, we could play, we, we had this, you know, coffee house that we played at. There's a couple places around town that we played. And I mean, lines out the door, fire marshals showing up, way too many people coming to see us anytime we played. And of course, all of that went away. All the momentum that we had garnered at that point all dissipated because we couldn't do anything. We couldn't release new music. We couldn't, we could play, but what are we going to just keep playing the same songs over and over again? We can't release new material. We can't do anything. So they kind of had us under that. And so all that momentum we gained was just kind of gone. And so I kind of let myself believe that that dream had died and that being a big music artist wasn't a real thing for me. And so eventually all the band members also agreed to that, agreed with that conclusion and decided to move on. And it all kind of fell apart. And I was kind of left there being like, wow, I spent most of my life wanting to do this. And now I had a chance and it's all gone and I don't even know why. 
it actually took a long time for me to even get the rights to the masters of those songs, which at that point was basically a keepsake because, you know, I couldn't do anything with them really. At that point I was like two years later and I'd moved on. So, you know, it didn't really matter, but I wanted them because I didn't want them to have them. So essentially what I did was after the dust settled, I kind of found myself playing in church again, doing the, the, what was comfortable and what I felt like I was good at and decided to attend an accredited seminary program through the church that I was attending as a satellite location for that school. I figured it looked good on a resume (laughs) if I was going to keep working in churches. And since I love to learn about things anyway, I mean, I didn't really see that there was any like downside to that. So I just did that and did that for like two years and dove completely into that and graduated uh, a few years later. And I think at that point I was barely old enough to drink. That's when I met you. Hmm. So I was super bright eyed and ready to enter full time ministry at that point. Yeah. And at this point, I had spent years being told that I was anointed by God to do these things, that I was special, that I was yep. better than everyone, you know, essentially, because in church circles, they've, because of what I could do and because I was so young and could do it, I was valued higher than a lot of people. So that would get all this stuff just given to me, all these opportunities, all these things. As a five, why would I not want to be special and <laughs> anointed by God? You know, <laughs> um, I thought I could do anything, and so you're the arbiter of truth. <laughs> yes, it was so. Um, it was it was so attractive, and so I was basically I had a high calling and a purpose. So that was I was basically high on this idea of like the Holy Spirit and being special in the eyes of God, and that I was primed and ready to dedicate my whole life to that idea. So that's kind of how my story got started and kind of where I was at that point. I grew up in a very spiritual household. Uh, we had a lot of choices. We practiced just about everything from Judaism, Unitarianism, New Age, you name it. We probably practiced it. I even went to a Jewish preschool and learned all the prayers and found out a lot of who I was based off of all of those practices. But I never felt settled with any one practice. I knew there was a God who loved us. I felt that at a very young age. But I wanted proof of divinity, I guess, proof of a purpose with God. So when I was older, I searched for proof, and I found it in Christianity. I can't say that that's going to be the case for everyone, but for me, the proof found me. And uh, that's a long story, And but my wandering mind found peace with Christianity. I'm definitely a progressive Christian. I'm not going to say that I'm not. I don't follow the expectations of whatever a Western church is supposed to be, but I do have a rich, deep prayer life. Um, My favorite times are in the silences when I can talk to God and I can hear Him spiritually and feel His presence. I love to sing. I love to worship in unique ways. Sometimes that's holding my hands up. Sometimes that's singing at the top of my lungs. Sometimes it's being in a group of people in silent meditation. It's all different, but I still see that God cares for me and loves me. And I really couldn't see my life without having spirituality and having God in my life. Four 
about 15 years, I was very religious, became a Christian in college, and it was Calvinist Christianity. And so it was a lot of knowledge, a lot of books to read, a lot of learning the Bible, and I loved all that. It contributed to a lot of mental health problems that I had that I didn't know I had until I got out of it. But it was easy while I was in it because everything was just mapped out for you. Here are all the answers to all of your existential questions ever. Now, having gotten out of it for a while and able to look backwards, it was easy but not helpful to me. Now I'm in a more secure place, a more embodied place, a more being able to trust my own judgment, trust my own body, trust my own thoughts. And so now I like understanding more science that I had missed out on, becoming a Christian in college, a lot of anthropology and biology and different things. And so it's been fun to learn all that. And then as far as spirituality, now I guess my ethics come from within me. Does this feel right? That might sound kind of woo-woo, but it really is. Like I can tell inside my body, like, no, this is unkind or this is wrong. And yeah, it's nice to be able to trust my own judgment now. Before we move on, I think it'd be a really good time to, I want to hear, let's break it up a little. <laughs> it's yeah. going to be a long story. Um, so how did you, how did how'd your story start and how do you get to that point, you know, for yes. you? Because I feel like we're actually pretty opposite. Because you were saying earlier when we first started that your, 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 your journey has been mostly private, whereas... As you'll find, mine was very public, like mm, yep. painfully public. So for me, I looked forward to this opportunity. I've never told this story. So I actually looked forward to it to finally get it all out there. Whereas you, it's the exact opposite. So Yeah, I mean, I think I look forward to it because just going through the process of thinking through how I'm going to explain all this stuff has really helped bring clarity. Sure. Yeah, it's very therapeutic. Um, that part is good. So we want to go all the way back because I, I, I grew up a little differently than you. Yeah. <laughs> Started in the hills of West Virginia. And, uh, I feel like when you, sorry, I just have to say, whenever you said we're going to go all the way back, I thought of uh, Wayne's World. But it was like, doo -doo 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 -doo. <laughs> you have to see the video to understand what that was, or you get the reference, but yeah, sorry. <laughs> going way back. Yeah. So for context, my dad grew up very much backwoods Methodist, very small congregation. From my understanding, up until he was around 30. And mm. then he went to a rally in DC and came back like full on Pentecostal. Okay. And he started a church in this tiny, tiny town in West Virginia and was... That is the prime location. Well, he was basically like doing all of this like charismatic Pentecostal stuff in this tiny town and very quickly gained a reputation and not a great one. From my understanding, I still don't know all the details of everything that went on because sure. we were, I was, that's not your story. That's right. Story. Yeah. I was You're like, part of I was like seven point. when we left, but that's sure. how I, so I mean, I, I grew up essentially a pastor's kid Yeah, and I was seven when we left. How I understand it is he kind of got ran out of town in a way. Hmm. And interesting. And so, as I've mentioned before in, in previous conversations, we, we moved around a lot, but he was always doing small groups mm. and I don't know if my dad's a five or not, but. And there's, there's some things about him that I could definitely see. And he was, if he's a five, he's, was he really performative? No, he's, he's very much wants to be the expert. Oh, okay. And, and that makes sense. Is, you and your brother are both five. Is, so. is very much the type of person that feels confident mm -hmm. when he has as much knowledge about something as he can get. Sure. I always grew up in that setting of being around Bible study 
and really getting into theology. And I also grew up around certain practices that I, I can't really explain. <laughs> like, Can you try? Yeah, well, like, you know, <laughs> stuff like being slain in the spirit, if you've heard that term. Oh, sure. And okay. miraculous healings and right. things like that. Getting filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and, and all of that stuff. And so I was around all of it. You know, I was a kid, so I wanted to be a part of it because I looked up to the adults and I was actually, I usually had more in common with adults than I had with <laughs> like Same. Uh, with yeah. kids. I was like that too. And, and so I would sit in on the Bible studies mm. and even as a young kid, I remember that. And I was thirsty for knowledge and for understanding the world. I grew up in such a small world because we were always moving around and we kept the circle tight. I wasn't exposed to much for most of my life growing up. Yeah. And this was like my one source of knowledge that could help me understand the world around me and give me some sort of framework for, you know, uncovering the truth. I ate that sort of stuff up. I've been part of pretty much every denomination at this point because we jumped around a lot. And then when I was in high school, we moved kind of outside Nashville. Historically, we've been more like non-denominational, kind of charismatic. And then there was a small independent Baptist church that was like a quarter mile from my house. And there was this girl at school that I had a crush on that went there. And uh, so I took my parents into trying it out. And then, classic. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where we ended up for like the next six years or something like oh that. Oh my God. Did you like her that long? Oh no. Yeah. yeah. It never <laughs> happens that way. And you're like, oh man, I'm stuck here now. <laughs> that whole ordeal is a story for another time. We will get to that in the next season. Just uh, relationships in general. Ah. She was part of the worship team and, you know, yeah. I had just kind of learned how to play guitar. And Ooh, so, yeah. you know, I, I got, I kind of weaseled my way into that. And then I ended up leading the worship team because I think like my first rehearsal, the worship leader for the youth band got angry about something and just was like, I'm out of here. And they're like, who's going to lead? It was really, it was one of those like TV moments. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, who's going to lead? I can try. <laughs> yes, totally. And then in the back of the room, right. like we're hand raised slowly. I'll do it. <laughs> or no, it's more probably more I, like, you I, have a guitar. Yeah, it's basically what it was. Yeah. It's like, I just jumped in and, and it actually went kind of well. And so they're like, well, guess what? Now he's a worship leader. What are you going to do about that? It was very much one of those oh, um, man. power play things. Yep. That, for the first time, really pushed me into the behind the scenes mm. of the church world, Yes, which most people don't see. They go to church, they, maybe they go to a small group, and they go home. When you are actually in ministry and working behind the scenes, it's a much different world. There are entire podcasts dedicated to what happens behind yeah. the scenes, and it's most of the time, I mean, I, I know we said we weren't going to say negative things, and I'm not saying negative things, but I mean- No, we can say negative things. I'm just saying we're not- we're, we're not like bashing anyone. Right? right. We're not bashing anyone, but I mean, there is a very real thing, a, a, a very strong reality that happens behind, behind closed doors, behind the curtain of churches where, I mean, I've worked in most denominations of Christian churches and I've never been in one ever that didn't have very shady shit happening. Yeah. Um, and stuff that makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. So prime example. So we kind of came in sort of in the middle of this whole process, right? And the church was in this sort of smaller building. And the pastor that came in, it was a very Trumpian kind of a figure. Uh, and okay. very, very authoritarian. More just like very ego-driven. 
but also like kind of shady. Yeah. And he convinced everyone that we needed this giant building because that would attract all the people and we can have a big church and all this stuff. So as far as I know, from what I remember, we dumped like a million dollars into this building right next door. Yeah. And then the the old building was going to be like the youth building. We built it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> right? In that process, turns out he was misappropriating like a bunch of funds. Yeah. And spent like ungodly amounts of money on this podium. It was like a, it was like a fiberglass podium sure. or some sort of thing. And, and they bought like this baby grand piano and filled the church building. And then basically he got kicked out of the church for a good reason. Yeah. And then the church split and we didn't have enough people to fill the building. So then the building sat for like yeah. a year or two. We started having services over in there and then like basically all of a sudden the church is split and we're not there anymore and we're back in the old building, but they didn't have enough money to like keep the air conditioning and stuff like the, the air going in the building and they didn't have enough room in the other building for the baby grand. So the piano was sitting over there, <laughs> yeah, not being taken care of. Mm-hmm. So finally, I think after like a year or two, we got to the point where we could keep the lights on in this other building and we started having services over there. But the piano was like constantly needing to be tuned because we couldn't keep, we couldn't keep the lights on through the whole week. It was just like, <laughs> just on the weekends. Right. And I remember our worship leader for the church, he was a mentor of mine and you know, he was, he was a good guy and he had this idea, which made complete sense. Let's sell the baby grand. We don't need it. You right. know, we've got keyboards where he was a professional musician, I, I you know, know where this is playing going. and playing yeah. in bars and, and stuff back sure. in, in the day and his heathen days. And then he got in the church and yeah. I will say going to church in the Nashville area is uh, amazing Yeah, for that regard, because there's Completely so many spoiled. good musicians. Yeah, totally oh, my, spoiled. oh my God. Uh, I did not have that experience. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I learned, I learned from just some phenomenal musicians because yeah. of that. I remember he uh, called this meeting after church service one day. And he presented his idea. Hey, let's, you know, sell this. We can use this money for this, this, and this. And we, you know, we don't really need this. And it was like, he was talking about putting like an upside down cross with, you know, a pentagram on the church. (laughs) Right. I remember it was like this, this front row of gray haired ladies who in like unison got up and just started shouting at him. They were like, I've never been in a Baptist church that didn't have a grand piano. And and by the end, I, I kid you not, they were all chanting, tune it and play it, tune it and play it, tune it and play it. <laughs> That's too good. That's too good. And, and, and that was, I think that was my first kind of inkling of like, okay, maybe adults don't know everything. Like what is going on? Cause it seemed completely logical. I mean, here's me sitting over here as, you know, five teenager. And I'm like, this makes complete sense. This is what we have. This is what we need. This, we don't need this anymore. We just sell right. it, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Right. No sentimental attachment to anything. Right. Man. It was like we were killing somebody. Yeah. <laughs> I totally have lived that scenario many times. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah. I I went from there. I remember kind of the next phase of my story was I, I stuck around for college in the same town, in my hometown, to go to community college, even though I had really good grades and really high test scores. I heard God tell me to stay and go to community college. Um, oh. I probably could have gotten a full ride to any state school yeah, and, or more. I don't know. I didn't really try. I was trying to listen to God. And an- another thing I need to mention here is like, I wasn't like what they call like a cafeteria Christian, right? I was, you know, in church leadership. My senior year, when everybody was like partying and stuff, I was reading the Bible all the way through. 
Like I was, you were a better Christian than I was. <laughs> I didn't smoke, didn't drink. I got pissed at my friends whenever they were partying or doing any of that kind of stuff. And I would like ostracize them and judge them and be all holier than thou and self-righteous and super legalized, super legalistic. Yeah. yeah and or legalistic yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> legalized is what we want for marijuana. Yeah. <laughs> And, and so I was in it, but I always had this intense anxiety around whether or not I was doing God's will. Anytime I was making decisions, and then I would try to go back to like my my framework of the Bible and my systematic theology, and I would go through all the stuff and try to figure it out, and it would just like I'd be racking my brain because it didn't make any sense, and I would I would just be frozen in this over analysis all the time, and like all these different decisions. And I, so I never really did anything with my life and I didn't know where I was going. Yeah. And then one day I really felt like I heard from God. And so I went to the school. It was an experience. Uh, it was a bit of a joke. I, well, I treated it as a joke. I started as a music major and very quickly I got to the point where I think I did two or three semesters. And then I'm like, I'm going to take a semester off, quote unquote. Uh, I knew what I was really doing. I was just not going to go back to school because right. I, I hated it. And it's the socially acceptable way of quitting college. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> I felt like I was too smart for school. I had another, it was like a dream. Mm -hmm. And basically I heard God tell me that I needed to become a youth pastor. Hmm. And I remember, you know, I was, I was at this point where I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. And I, you know, pretty much flunked out of school and cause I will never go to class. And <laughs> I got this, finally got this clarity of, okay, this is the decision. I've just been spinning my wheels trying to make a decision. This is the decision. And all of a sudden, like, I'm like, okay, I know what I need to do. I went back to school. I did like Maymester, summer, fall, spring, Maymester, summer, and graduated with my associates. Maymester is like, they offer like you do one class in like three and a half weeks. And it's like, oh, right. like, yeah, like yeah. eight to okay. five every day. Yeah. And I did that and graduated, like brought my GPA up from a 1.7 to I think like a 3.5 because I knew I was going to go to essentially seminary. I then again had what I felt was God telling me to go to Chattanooga mm -hmm. and I looked up schools there. At first, I didn't know where I was going to go. There were you know, a few options around here. And then a friend of mine said something like his dad went to, to this school school mm -hmm. actually you know what i am going to say the name of this because the school it doesn't, it doesn't the, exist the school doesn't exist anymore yeah went to tennessee temple university yes and a very baptist university <laughs> yeah. in the middle of chattanooga tennessee yeah so uh so i looked into it and because i came from this really small world i i could not see and i was in this bubble i could not see the red flags <laughs> yeah <laughs> but anyway i signed up and they you know, i went down and talked to like the the president the, of the school his son who led like the worship teams and then he was like yeah we're going to give you a scholarship all the stuff so i'm like okay this is this is going to happen and i switched over to be a youth ministry major and i was taking seminary level classes i was acing all of my systematic theology I was pulled into the allure of going back to that quote, that Richard Feynman quote, like I was pulled into the allure of this sort of systematic theology and I was deep in it. Like, sure. Yeah. But there were places where it was like, just don't look over there. Yep. And I couldn't not look over there. Yeah. Illusions. <laughs> don't, there's nothing here. Don't look behind right. that curtain. So that's kind of me growing up in the church. This is where our stories kind of converge for a little bit. Yeah, like. for yeah. sure. Yeah.
As a five, I find it difficult to engage with religion and spirituality. And let me say, actually, religion is easier than spirituality because religion is more easily observed in the actions, the decisions made in a, in a structured way. Spirituality being more metaphysical or having to accept some supernatural intervention in our lives is far more difficult for me to to hang on to. I haven't always felt this way, but I definitely do now. Part of it is because I deal with bipolar disorder, and most of the time I feel like a five. Some of the time when I'm more elevated, I feel more like an eight. But early on in my first couple of episodes, I really thought there was a lot of spiritual stuff going on it, as I was in an elevated state. But as I've learned more about how the disorder plays out in my own life, it just makes it a much easier problem to solve to reduce any kind of spiritual factor in the explanation for, for my behaviors and my cognitive interior life. So that's, that's kind of how I feel. It's been shaped by my experience. And if I know myself, I'll probably have a different different take on this in a, in a couple of years. I would say that it is harder to engage with more so spirituality, I would say, just because it can be very dynamic and, and kind of big picture. However, when I can understand or maybe when I listen to something or read a book on things that how to apply it and make it more practical and then it clicks, then I love it. I'm more engaged with it. It's more understandable if it's done in more practical terms. Um, I do feel like especially spirituality, especially as a five, um, and I guess it's more the meditation is just really is more important for me, especially in the morning to get, get started because once I'm centered, then it'll help the whole day. So I'm less in my head. There's so many things about your story, though, that I hear and kind of want to comment on. Um, <laughs> Go for it. Not big things, but your church experience is actually probably so many. If there's anyone that's li that's listening right now who have worked in churches or even volunteered for church, mm. it's very likely they have a very similar experience to you. It's a very universal thing. And I'm speaking from somebody who did go to seminary and did work in churches. Like It's very universal. And I'll get into that a little bit later, maybe. It's something that... At its very, very least, churches, for me, it was very hard to be in church as a five. And I found that in my early 20s, that it was really hard for me to be the person who wanted to ask the hard questions, and everybody kind of constantly did that, don't look over there. Mm. don't. And, but they did that in conversation, they did that in <laughs> physically, that we kind of met in one particular church where I, that is also the church that I went to seminary through and everything, and... I never was on staff, <laughs> but I was never paid. Um, I was paid for a service, I guess, but it was a very little amount. And that's something that was not new to me is as someone who was in worship ministry or had a Christian band that played in churches all the time, 
they would always be like, well, we'll do what they called a love offering. We'll just, we'll get people to give you money, but we're not going to pay you any money. We want them to pay you money while also giving us money. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a great kind of pyramidy scheme kind of thing where it's like, we don't actually give you any money, but you're still going to get some money maybe, which is actually in, in my day and age now is the, the form of what we call tips for musicians. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, I'm going to just go ahead and burst that bubble for anybody listening. Musicians don't make money off of tips. You make maybe gas money off of tips. <laughs> so yeah, we never got paid from churches. And so I was, I was used to that. I wasn't sure how that was going to work, but in my mind, the goal was to get a salaried position on staff and have my own office. Yeah. I wanted my own office, especially after being being in seminary. And I thought that that's, I knew some shit. That's so funny that like as a five, that's one of the things that you were craving was your own office yeah. and your own space. Yeah, 100%. So and I, and there was some churches where I had a badass office. Like <laughs> I had my own space and it's, I, I'll get to that in a minute too. It's kind Did of, you have funny, shelves of books on the wall. So yeah. many shelves of books. And yes. I had all of, I literally would take, so I had so many books from seminary that I kept because they were books and I wanted to keep them and they were great keepsakes. It was great decoration for the walls. I had read, most of them were read through most of them to some degree and I used them as references, I guess, so that I could tell people when they were wrong. But most of the time they were just to put on a shelf on a wall so that people knew how smart I was mm-hmm. <laughs> and didn't question me when I said things. And we'll get to that. So <laughs> I worked in so many churches through my early 20s. And there was a, a girl that I was dating, which we mutually know. And I was dating her after we met. And her dad was a pastor of a Presbyterian church. And very similar to your experience with the piano, I remember there was a situation where he in a very logical way, was like, we want to build a new building, but we want to be out of debt. So we should sell this building and move to the new building when we're able to. We'll just sell it. And there was a huge faction in the church was like, why don't we keep them both, though? <laughs> and fought tooth and nail for that, to keep both buildings, even though that was not ever what they were going to do. Presbyterian churches, for those who don't know and aren't in Christianity, Presbyterian churches don't actually grow. They stay the same. <laughs> And eventually people just start dying off. Um, And so it was hilarious to me that they thought they could just keep planting more big churches because that's not what they do. That's what Baptist churches and Pentecostal churches and non-denominational churches, quote unquote, do. Um, They build huge buildings. So there's all these things to like, I should say as a side note. There's all these things that I can't have conversations with about people who didn't come from churches because they don't get all these inside jokes <laughs> of, of things that happened that is so funny to literally anybody who's ever been to a church. But if you've never been to church, which is Madison, never been to church, she gets none of these jokes. <laughs> she gets she doesn't understand my baggage. She doesn't understand yeah. my trauma. So I'm trying to explain to her and she's just like, oh, my God, I can't believe these things have happened to you. And I'm like, they've happened to a lot of people like everybody's been to church. So anyway, yeah. it's a whole thing. But fast forward a bit, I eventually break up with the girl that I was dating after I left her dad's church. (laughs) (laughs) But I landed for a time in a Southern Baptist church in the middle of nowhere outside of Chattanooga because they were willing to pay me is essentially I I interviewed for another church, which your wife's family knows really well. Mm -hmm. And they strung me along for three months of free labor, essentially being like, you're interviewing (laughs) 
and told me at the end that they wanted this other guy because he used to be in a big band um, that was signed or whatever. And so they got him instead. Then somebody reached out later and I actually genuinely was trying to be nice. And he was like, I know of another church. It's a small church. You know, it's probably just a part-time gig, but I can pass your name along. And I was like, I mean, I need money. So yeah, let's do that. And I would rather make money playing music. But that church... That church was my first experience with spiritual abuse. The pastor of the church was uneducated, simple-minded, but what he lacked in education, he made up for in authoritarian control tactics and ultimatums and micromanaging everyone on staff. And it was the worst job I had ever had at that point in my life. That job eventually ended up ended after he yelled at me in front of half the church because I was telling him how I wanted to do the, do how I wanted to organize the service. And he was embarrassed, I guess. And therefore he lashed out. And so I walked out of that church at night and walked into his office the next morning and told him I quit. Hmm. And basically was like, you can't talk to me that way. And after that, I eventually landed in an Anglican church and had this whole new world revealed to me. So the church was incredibly special to me in that time. It felt like kind of for the first time I had found a home and a group that I could feel as though I was truly a part of, I guess, but I had been attending. So the church was modeled in a way where like they had this coffee shop that was actually supposed to be separate from the church, believe it or not. (laughs) Churches have coffee shops all the time that are church coffee shops, but this one was supposed to be completely separate. Their model was putting an actual business where people could meet that did not have ulterior motives to bring you into the church, but was a place where people could meet and start businesses and do all these things. It was modeled after um, St. Patrick and the way that he basically (laughs) colonized Ireland for Christianity back in the day. And I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah, it was a whole thing. And it worked. I mean, it worked really well for a while. But so the sound guy, after I'd played a bunch of open mics and kind of just did that for a while and really started to get to know people, he invited me to a church service. And I reluctantly attended. At this point, after my first traumatic experience, I was like, should I be in churches? I don't even know. But very quickly, I was sold. They propelled me into leadership. And within just a few weeks, I was assisting in building a new type of worship service for them that was like a super late night, all around this table kind of situation. It was very centered on like a candlelight kind of coming to a a dinner table, essentially, right? It was all kind of about community and, and communion and this whole thing. And It was also around this time that I met a girl. We had been involved for a bit. I had another job that was, I've I've, I've referenced this job in my, in past episodes, actually, uh, in the careers episode, my favorite job ever, working at a theater. So I met this girl in the theater. She worked there. She was uh, a bit younger than me. We got involved for a bit, I guess, but no labels, just like casual thing as 20, young 20 somethings often say. And uh, I think this is also a good time to point out that I never thought sex outside of marriage was a sin. So I definitely did. I wasn't, so I never really bought into a lot of the legalism. So it was really hard for me to justify. And this was where my fiveness come out, came out. People wouldn't answer the questions for me. So I answered them myself. Mm. And especially once I went to seminary, I was like, I mean, nothing ever really told me. I, I very much understood that the Bible was contextually dependent on history and historical time than when, when it was written and not applied to today. Yeah, that was definitely not where it's I came never, from. It's yeah. never, no pastor ever tells you that. They don't want you to know that. <laughs> but you know, you think about any historical book, it's going to apply to what the author would have known at the time. And so I knew that. And so I knew, okay, <laughs> you know, sex outside of marriage, all these things, you know, homosexuality being a sin, all these things I knew was just one perspective from one person 2,000 years ago or longer. And 
did not couldn't there's no way that could apply to now it was logically didn't make any sense so that didn't make any sense to me at all and so sex outside of marriage not a sin but it had it always just seemed silly to me and but I knew that churches disagreed with me and usually fired people for those kinds of unforgivable sins, you know, murder, getting high sex. They were all the same <laughs> in their eyes, <laughs> Yeah, in the eyes of the modern evangelical church anyway. But the girl followed me to this church when I began attending. So some time goes by and I decide that I want to break it off with this girl. She was fine with that at first until I met someone that I actually wanted a relationship with. And it was at that point that the heartbroken girl decided that I needed to pay and got very vengeful. So she told the pastor's wife in a, I guess was supposed to be in a confidential setting, told her that we had been physically involved for a while. So they immediately called a meeting and promptly fired me because they asked me, they basically sat me down and said, did you have sex with this person? And I said, yep. And they said, cool, we have to fire you. And I said, I know. And that was the end of that meeting. It lasted maybe five minutes. I got up, I left. I called my friend at Starbucks and said, can I have a job? And they said, yep. And I said, cool. Before I got in my car, I had another job. Because <laughs> <laughs> at this point, you know, you have, you have given, keep in mind too, I mean, we've talked in the past, I've had 30 something jobs. Yeah. All of them were part-time jobs to keep up this whole facade of working in churches that don't pay you enough. So... I was really good at getting part-time jobs. So as soon as I walked out of that room, a person came to mind that said, I knew they posted on Facebook a couple days ago. They were looking for somebody. I knew they were a GM at a, at a Starbucks. So I called them and they were like, yeah, you can have a job. And I was like, cool, great. No interview, no nothing. Just, okay, cool. We'll come in on Monday. We'll work it out. And I was like, great. And that's how that whole thing happened. But I rolled with that, fully accepting those consequences and immediately got a job at Starbucks. So this must have angered her more that I rolled with it so easily. So she lied to a bunch of people, told them that I had taken advantage of her as a worship pastor taking advantage of a college student. It was an easy, easy picture to paint. She then got the group to go to the church leadership and say things that were untrue. I had never met. I had barely met any of these people that were also in the church, but they were so on her side and so blinded by the situation that they went and told the leadership that I had done the same thing to them. And so then it became this like thing. And it was at this point that everything began to kind of implode and became very public very fast because the leadership didn't want the congregation to know. First of all, they didn't tell anybody in the church why I was fired. It was just all of a sudden like that, I was gone from all church services, all things happening. I wasn't allowed in the building. So all of a sudden, it's like everybody was not allowed to talk to me. And I was basically just excommunicated and because they didn't know what to do. It took probably a good two weeks before all of that came out as lies. And she admitted to the lies and all the other people very quickly kind of gave up on that story. But at that point, damage was yeah. way beyond done. And it was very public. <laughs> I remember somebody asked um, the friend who originally invited me that at that point I was pretty, I would say was one of my best friends, you know, the sound guy asked him um, and he told me about it. He was like, I hope you don't mind that I told him. But he told me the conversation and he came up and was like, okay, so like, why did Cody get fired? And he was like, I, I really can't, I can't talk about it. And he goes, okay, but I just need to know was like, was it illegal? <laughs> and he was like, no, it wasn't. And he was like, so was it weed or was it sex? <laughs> and he goes, it wasn't weed. <laughs> and he goes, oh, ugh, okay. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> He's like, as long as it wasn't illegal or like bad. And I was like, he was like, no, it wasn't. And so he's like, okay. And that's pretty much, it took a long time for people to find out why. But once they found out why, they were in the same boat as me. They were like, oh, okay. 
you know, whatever, you know, that was their policy, whatever. But it took a long time for that to happen. And this city is small enough that no matter where I went, I ran into people and I was terrified to run anybody in that church. It was so traumatic for me. I felt like no matter what I did, I couldn't get away from it. And during that two weeks, they hounded me, called me constantly trying to like resolve the situation. The problem was that the pastor was so much of an ego trip that he had to be involved in everything. So his only solution that I had to agree with if I wanted to stay a part of the church was to be a part of uh, sexual addiction therapy that he had his hand in and was allowed to know all of the things that were in the therapy sessions. And so I responded with, I absolutely need therapy, but not for that. And now it's for this. So I'm actually going to get therapy outside of that. And I was actually working at another church at the time. So I came fully clean to that pastor, told him everything. He walked through, it's one of the very few people I've ever met in, in church ministry who was a good person. And he was like, yeah, you're not a sex addict. <laughs> you're just a young 20 something. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you had sex with somebody like, okay. And so he was like, not going to fire you. You can keep working here, but let's, you know, he was like, I actually have a degree in counseling and therapy. Do you want to do it with me? You don't have to, you can go with somebody else, but I think you should have be in therapy. And I was like, I mean, yeah, we can do it. I'll do it with you. That's fine. So we went through, I don't know, a few months of therapy and eventually it got to the point where he was like, I don't think you need therapy anymore. We've kind of hashed out a lot of this. Little did he know I needed more therapy, but I wasn't being super honest about it. (laughs) Were you manipulating the conversation? Very much so. Very much so. Yes. I was doing it to make it look like I had gone to therapy and Mm -hmm. I really, really needed therapy, but I didn't go. So yeah, I don't, it's, It was a whole thing. And that traumatized me so much because all of these people that I thought were the closest people in my life at that time who had very much a huge spiritual influence in my life completely rejected me, completely threw me out. I just felt rejected. And I felt I was rejected kind of over and over and over again. I was told not to come back to any event happening in the building, not even the coffee house. So that coffee house was supposed to be separate from the church, not allowed in there either. I was only allowed to come back if I subjected myself to the demands. So obviously not going to do that. But one day, many months later, an acquaintance calls me up to tell me he had recently been appointed senior pastor at a fairly new church. And he wanted me to be the worship pastor full time. So I told him what had happened, came clean of the whole thing. He wanted me there anyway. And so... (laughs) I was super excited to get back in the saddle, you know, and this was a long time. I'd been working at Starbucks pretty much full time, just trying to get by. I kind of was just in the dumps at that point. You know, I felt like kind of everything had fallen apart and I was in a really dark place. And I wasn't sure at that point that I wanted to be in churches anymore for good reason. (laughs) But I didn't think that I could really do anything else. And so you know, I'd been brainwashed most of my life by the church into thinking I was only valuable in the church. Hmm. And my skills, my knowledge, my experience, it all meant something within the walls of the church, outside of the walls. For anybody who's ever worked in church ministry, you get this. Like, you do all of these things. You work so hard to get all this knowledge, all this experience. And outside of that, most companies don't appreciate or acknowledge those skills. They see them as something that is not translatable. You have to learn 
coming out of church ministry, how to communicate those skills as something that has nothing to do with church. And you have to communicate it as marketing skills and you know sales and all of these kinds of things. You have to learn to do it a different way if you want anybody to listen to you or take you seriously. I didn't want to talk about church after I got out of church, so it was really hard for me to try to communicate in that way. But only there I could be in this church, I could be smart enough, I could be strong enough, interesting enough, or just enough. I felt if I was in, it got to a point where like my identity was so wrapped up in working in churches and being in churches that I didn't feel like I could do anything else because there I was smart. I was, you know, I was capable. I was all these things. So as an Enneagram five, the church became my security blanket in that way a place to feel like I mount up to the version of myself that I held in my mind. But it was also, it was, it was my abuser and my security blanket, I guess, in mm. that way. And so it was, but I didn't know that at the time, you know, I didn't think of it that way, but while so, work. So it was kind of like you had Stockholm syndrome. Absolutely. hundred percent. Yes. Uh, and I fully understand it. But, you know, while working at Starbucks, I had also rekindled a friendship and quite quickly an intimate relationship with someone whom I had known for years prior to that. And we've been dating a few months by the time I accepted the position at that new church. Everything kind of felt like it was falling into place in that moment. Everything was kind of coming back together and I was starting over again. The girlfriend had a charismatic evangelical background. And in that world, everything has a reason and all things come together for those <laughs> who are the most faithful. Mm. And so it was all a sign that we were going in the right direction and that I had been given an opportunity to get back into the church. And so we took that as a sign and we went with it and we were right that we were right for each other and that everything happened for a reason. So we were engaged within a few months <laughs> and then married a couple months later. <laughs> yeah. And she became the youth pastor at that church. We were this small, happy little Christian ministry family for a short, short, short time Behind closed doors, obviously, more nefarious activity in this church. It was constantly things going on. It didn't take long for cracks to start showing themselves, and I was already an incredibly damaged person at this point and did not let myself open up to therapy or anything, so I hadn't dealt with any of it. And being in church was as painful and traumatic as it was safe. So to add fuel to the fire, there were certain people in the leadership of this church with incredibly abusive behavior left completely unchecked. And one person in particular threatened me with my job position on a weekly basis if I didn't live up to his standards. He constantly pressured me and would pressure our entire pastoral team to do more and work harder and constantly push us past our breaking point, all because he said that we didn't have enough money to keep the lights on. Eventually, we asked a retired pastor to come in and help us lead a more traditional service for the older people, which is where the majority of the money in the church was. And so we constantly catered and coddled the older congregants so they would keep giving us bigger donations every Sunday. Yep. It didn't take long for this older pastor to convince the rest of the board of trustees, which is what they were called in this church, mm -hmm. that we were no longer a necessity. They fired all of us at once one evening after a church service. Wow. So many months later, <laughs> it would come out that that same man who hounded us about money every day of every week of for the full two years I had worked there had been stealing upwards of $100,000 from the church. <laughs> no one ever pressed charges. Uh... But anyway, there's so much to say about that church and so many things. I mean, I had a similar experience for as a five is one of the most infuriating times for me. We had a lock in. We so we were there all night long because I hate kids. I, 
I kind of locked myself in the sanctuary because we had completely taken the all the chairs and everything and put them away because we used it for like we put in the middle of the sanctuary this massive blow up slide. <laughs> And all these things. So we were having all this fun. It was crazy or whatever. My wife at the time, which you also know, is, you know, a crazy person. So she was perfect for that position. And as far as like youth and all this stuff, she was super fun. And so that was her idea. And so we tore the whole sanctuary down. We did this whole thing. And so then sometime in the night when everybody was passed out in the floors all over the church and couches and whatever, I was in there resetting up the sanctuary. And I was like, you know, if I split up these chairs and do it a different way we can fit more people in here and they're more spread out and it makes more sense and it's actually more like ergonomical for the room and so i set it up that way just did it well that was the the lock-in was on a saturday night i think so of course i stayed there and i don't think i led worship i did not lead worship the next morning i had somebody else doing it but i was there so i had not slept i literally was setting up chairs and doing all setting it all up maybe an hour before the service right So I get it all set up. I'm like super proud of myself. I'm like, I figured out a way better way to do this. So I have this one person come in who did like the website and all the stuff for the church that was like online things. And he came in and was like, where's my seat? And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, my seat, it's not in the spot that it was. And I said, there are 500 seats in the sanctuary. Pick one. That's exactly what I said. I said it like that because <laughs> I would not slept, you know? <laughs> yeah. And he looked at me and he goes, I don't want to pick one. I want my seat back. And I was like, church service starting 15 minutes. I can't do anything for you. If you want to pull a seat to whatever spot it was, be my guest. And I walked off. That man immediately went to the church leadership and said, if this doesn't go back to the way it was, and if he doesn't apologize to me, I quit. Hmm. The pastoral staff took me out to dinner to convince me to apologize. <laughs> Actually, they took me out for beer. <laughs> they wouldn't have told the rest of the church that. They're like, we're going to give you a beer. We need you to apologize. And I said, I, I verbatim. Bribe you with alcohol. And they, yeah. And they, and I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was absolutely some form of, because at this point in my life, I was not really pretending for anyone. So there was some form of, Fuck that shit. I will not apologize to that asshole. I will not do it. And they were like, you kind of have to. And I was like, does my job depend on it? And they said it might. And I was like, well, I guess I'll apologize, but I need you to know that I fucking hate this. (laughs) And so I did it and I apologize and he stayed on and I never talked to him again. (laughs) In an impulse decision, I got a job at another church part time after I was fired from that church. (laughs) Wait, how did you get fired? Because they thought we weren't necessary. So the church, essentially what happened was we, we invited oh, th- that story was before you got fired. We invited the, uh, all of that was before. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I did not get invited. I did not get fired for the, the seat. Okay. Um, that was just, a, I, I, I was thinking about your story and that was, that oh. was, that was one of the most infuriating times for me in a church. Cause I was, it was, it was against all logic and it was, and this church was full of people who only cared about like. They had in their mind all of these things that were holy things Hmm. that had nothing to do with God or the Bible or doctrine or anything. It was just, this is how we've always done it. So we're always going to do it this way. And obviously as a five, that is our version of hell because there's no logic. There's no, (laughs) there's no evolving. There's no, oh, we learned a better way to do this. So we're going to do it that way. It's, we're always going to do it the way we've always done it because we've always done it that way. And that there is no logic there. Yeah. And so there's a lot of people in churches that do that. 
which is why churches don't change. And so after the pastor convinced all of them, and I never got along with this pastor, I will say that he was one of those people who had his own like way of doing things. And we clashed a lot because I wanted to do them a better way and he wanted to do them the old way. And so (laughs) I remember our very first staff meeting, he threw out an idea and I said, "Eh, I mean, that won't, I don't think that'll really work because of, you know, A, B and C. What if we do it this way? And then somebody else said, well, I don't know about that. What if we do this way? Blah, blah, blah. Now, all he heard was I shot down his idea and he is a senior pastor who had 30 years in ministry and no one had ever questioned him in his last church. Wow. So from that point on, I was public enemy number one in his mind. All he wanted to do was fire me. So everything that we did, I wasn't after that situation. He asked me to apologize to him. For that, and I said, I don't have anything to apologize for you for to to you for. You gave out an idea that wasn't going to work. It was a bad idea. I didn't shoot it down. I just said maybe we should try something else. And so this conversation, as you can imagine, did not go anywhere. And he, I was not allowed in his church service. (laughs) He did like an earlier AM church service. I wasn't allowed in it. Wow. And the senior pastor, who was the friend of mine that got me the job, he was in the middle trying to make all this like, okay. And I told him, I was like, I'm fine not going to his church service. So like problem solved. (laughs) So this is the kind of stuff that was happening in this church while also we were being verbally abused for, you know, every day. And so eventually he figured out a way to get rid of all of us so that he could just take control of the whole thing. Good for him. Like whatever he staged a coup and got us all out in one fail swoop. So it worked. And so I, at this point was so blinded by my trauma and could still could not see myself doing anything else that I got another job at another church part time. And this was a Presbyterian church that was a, an evangelical Presbyterian church. So it was like a Baptist church with a Presbyterian name. That's essentially what that denomination is. Interesting. Yeah. They still claim to be Calvinists, but they also really love Baptist things. So (laughs) that's essentially what that denomination is. And this, this church wasn't the worst church. Like I've, I basically just told you the worst church and I could go on and on about that church. I'm not going to, but there was, it was basically a business and it was kind of this whole thing. I didn't know when I got in there. The church that I was in, the next church was not the worst church. It mostly had good people in it. But by this time, I was so damaged and so traumatized. It was hard for me to want to be there at all. I was so burned out. I was so disconnected. It was too painful. And my experiences had also led me to a place where I didn't have much patience for the politics of it all and the faux goodness that everyone kind of exuded a lot of the time. So everything the church raised money for They would tell everyone that it was for the community, but it was really just kind of for themselves. Like they wanted to build a building, um, a nice fancy youth building. They wanted to send kids to third world country so they could be thankful for their upper middle class life at the expense of poor people. And, you know, things like that. There's a lot of like missionary things going on, but they never actually did anything. And that happens a lot in churches. Um, So you have to kind of wade through that. But sometimes people want to do really good things and they really try. I've been on mission trips where we tried to do really good things. And it wasn't this whole, like, we're trying to save people. Like, I went to a village in Jamaica for a summer, and we built buildings for a deaf village that was rejected from the entire community. Like, there's things that happen that that wouldn't have happened if teams didn't come there for, you know, weeks at a time or months at a time and help because they didn't have help. So sometimes it was good things. But most of the time, it's an experience. And you it's like, that's like teenagers' ways of getting to go to other countries and experience something they've never experienced before. And that's kind of been a general critique of mission trips in general, I think. But whatever the case, 
I could no longer see it through the rose colored lens that church demanded that I use to see through things a lot of time. And one day during a worship service, I was on stage and I had this whole realization all at once. <laughs> Almost like a revelation, you might say. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew in that moment I was completely done. I had been half-assing it for a while, but I was really done. I just couldn't do it anymore. I was listening to this woman on stage talk about how she was so thankful to God and so blessed by God that they'd given all this money for this building that I knew would sit empty most of the week. And they kept saying it was for the community around them. And I knew that community would probably never get in that building. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of done. I was done working in churches. Then I was realized I was done going to church. And then I realized I was done trying so hard to be someone good enough to be in the church, kind of the whole package, the whole thing. I couldn't do it anymore. And so I promptly quit the next day. They actually were, I think we we're going to fire me. They called a meeting and it was this huge meeting. And I remember sitting outside and I could hear them praying for all of the guidance and everything that they were needing for that conversation. I mean, I walk in and that air is thick with tension, right? Mm -hmm. And I sat down and I had a whole typed out thing already. I'd already signed it. I was, resignation was already in hand. And they were like, all right, so I guess we should get started. And I was like, actually, hey, before you say anything, can I just read this? <laughs> and they were like, oh, uh, sure. I read it all of them. It's like the tension just dissipated. They were like, Oh my, thank God. <laughs> we did not have to have this hard conversation about, cause I felt like they were probably going to give me an ultimatum. If I had to guess, they're going to be like, you need to like do the job that we hired you to do and do it fully, or we're going to have to let you go. And they thought that was going to be a really hard thing. But I basically was just like, I'm done. Like I can't do this anymore. I don't want to be here anymore. So I'm just going to peace out. So I gave them like two weeks. That was in September of 2014. So that kind of puts in perspective. It wasn't that long ago, but it feels like forever ago. And yeah, that was also the last time I ever went to church. I, I did mm -hmm. attend a couple other events in churches after that, mm -hmm. but I was so uncomfortable. I had to leave almost immediately afterwards. I couldn't do it, but it didn't take long for my marriage to completely crumble. The only thing that had held us together was the superficial belief in a higher power that we had thought had brought us together. But once that was taken away, you know, yeah. there was nothing left. So we divorced the next year. And the whole year, 2015, was one uh, I'll never forget. It was a year of heartbreak and absolute and complete unraveling and a time where I had to face a lot of things I had never faced. I had to come to grips with the realization that I had never considered a life after God. And once I left the church, God began to die to me slowly every day, I think. And so it was this like reliving that kind of process to me. And so everything kind of fell apart and I couldn't understand how I ever believed in such things to, in my mind. And so none of it made sense anymore. My seminary background, ironically, only further informed these thoughts. Yeah. And something kind of new began to form. I, you know, I began kind of identifying more as an atheist or agnostic simply out of convenience. It was easier in conversation. And for about three years, I, I couldn't really talk about God. If someone even mentioned the typical buzzwords said in church circles, I would have a deeply negative visceral reaction and would sometimes result in uncontrollable panic attacks. Hmm. It created this irrational fear of running into people from my religious past. And I felt like I couldn't go anywhere or do anything. And I felt completely paralyzed. That's when I moved to Nashville. Yeah. <laughs> and though I, and, and thought I wanted to start a new life, but I 
though I wanted to start a new life, I wasn't far enough away <laughs> mm. from the old one to actually do that. And also was in such an unhealthy and destructive place that I basically just shut myself off from everyone and everything. And I drank a lot and spent most days alone in my small studio apartment that was just underneath you. And we talked maybe <laughs> 10 times. Um, but it was there that against all odds, I did start again. And we'll leave it at that. So I want to hear you need to catch up with me now. Yeah. Whew. Yeah, that's the heaviest part of the story. I will say that's we're we're past the worst part of my story. Yeah, that's that's really heavy, man. And yeah. you know, I think one of the reasons why it feels heavy for me personally is we were apart that whole time. And yeah, because I was I I'd left Chattanooga at the end of 2011, and so through all of that, you know, I had no idea what was really going on with you. Yeah. So to hear it all kind of condensed in that way is like, man, it's a lot. Yeah. And I want to, maybe I just kind of need to recenter for a second, but because part of it as, as your friend, I could feel my blood start to boil, mm, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, sure. Like I'm, I'm like taking on some of your trauma for you. Yeah. Um, and also it, I'm, I'm thankful that I didn't actually end up going into ministry. Yeah. Because I, I'm sure it would have been a very similar experience for me. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, so I worship Jesus Christ. I enjoy going to church, mostly because I love learning, diving deep into different concepts, and because of those learning experiences and my personal experiences, I have a knowledge that I don't have to ask the questions of where I'm from and why I'm here and where I'm going after this life. And that means the world to me. That just puts one set of worries to the side. What I worry about most is what my current purpose is here on Earth, other than being tested and doing the best I can so that I can live with my Heavenly Father and my family again. And being able to be guided by Heavenly Father through my life endeavors has been a major, huge blessing for me. The gospel has helps me learn more than I can ever tell you in this two-minute clip. <laughs> you would really have to sit down with me to get to know my story. So as a five, I think religion's irrational and abusive, and I think spirituality is beautiful and amazing, and I would consider myself deeply spiritual and ever-growing in that. I think the irony is religion is inherently the antithesis of spirituality, while also claiming to be an authority within that field. And so expounding on that, essentially spirituality is connecting to your soul and to the fact that there is something higher than you and it is a thing that you cannot understand as someone who is in an earthly body and it is this faith walk of following spiritual breadcrumbs and experiences and little whispers that you feel and experience in your body and in your spirit and religion is this structured money driven essentially business really that either works to control people or to exploit them and so if in your spirituality 
you are following these spiritual breadcrumbs and it you are guided somewhere or to do a thing that your religion says is bad, then you're asked to put down spirituality and replace it with religion. And so I think it's illogical, it's irrational. Religion is a story with plot holes galore, and spirituality is a story that is still being written and inherently says, like, we don't follow rules of logic, we we operate on faith and trust and something far outside of what can be logically processed. So religion tries to put spirituality in a box that is was created to defy. This has almost kind of become a buzzword at this point, but the, there's this process of deconstruction that I went through, and it, it started at one specific point, and then it just kind of took like 10 years mm-hmm. in kind of waves, <laughs> like yeah. a little until until the end when it just all crumbled, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Which mine was the opposite. It unraveled and crumbled at first and then became a deconstruction. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to where I was right before I moved to Chattanooga. So this was in the space where I had already made the decision to move. And it was probably, it was the summer before school started Mm -hmm. and I was going to move down there. And I was sitting in this Bible study and it had nothing to do with anything that was being talked about. But all of a sudden I just kind of had this out of body experience. Hmm. I can't for the life of me, like it's hard to put into words. There was nothing obvious that spawned it. I just sort of like separated from my body and saw myself for the first time from like a third person perspective. Mm -hmm. And I could see the condition of my heart. It becomes so cold and so shut off and so hardened keeping everyone at a distance, I had taken on this framework that, you know, I already had kind of a natural proclivity towards feeling distant from everyone else. But when you see people as almost points on a scoreboard, yeah, where your goal is to get them to come over to your side and either they're for you or they're against you, they're no longer people Mm -hmm. with their own stories and their own feelings and their own all the nuances involved in that, they are objects. Yeah, they're stats. <laughs> they're stats. And I treated everyone that way. And for the first time in my life, I saw it. That was the beginning of this journey for me because it profoundly changed me. I didn't realize how much at the time, but it was like the plug that I removed from the dam. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and it just started to drip, 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 drip. And slowly, 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 things started to kind of come down. I think it's actually similar for me. I didn't really say that in my portion of the story, but I mean, I had similar experiences with that in meetings where I would, mm. my mind would step outside of the moment for just long enough to go, all we're talking about for the last 45 minutes is how to get more people in the door and convert them so that we can get money from them. Yep. It's all about money. Eventually it's always about money. You just hide it in all this colorful language. And so I, I totally get that. Yeah. And even like separating the money piece of it, it's also like your personal tally. Yeah. That goes on your scoreboard. Oh, yeah, for the volunteers. Yeah, it's not about know. money. It's about, yeah. Yeah. And it's about heaven. And so I, I saw all of that and I saw just how I was treating other people and how I was viewing other people. And I remember uh, stuff started to change. And it was the first time I actually started to feel things a little bit. 
I was just so, in general. Yeah, just in general. Okay. I I become so numb to everything, and this wasn't just about church. It was my life in general. I had separated myself so much from the present moment and my body, and and just was living in my head and was living in this kind of analytical hellscape. I would say, yeah, of overthinking everything and not allowing myself to feel anything. This was the first time I started to feel. Honestly, I think this was the first time I really started to feel empathy since I was a kid. Okay. It was a new experience for me. I didn't really know how to handle it, but I was open to it, I guess. Mm -hmm. So then I moved down to Chattanooga, started school at Tennessee Temple. Of course, the scholarship that was promised me was non-existent. And (laughs) this place was, in its heyday, it was like 10,000, 12,000 people probably. And that was probably in like the 80s. By the time I got there, it was a few hundred people and the school was on the verge of bankruptcy. And none of this, of course, I could see from the outside. But as soon as I got there, it was really obvious. And all of a sudden, I had all these rules Mm, and they were completely nonsensical. Oh, yeah. I remember these rules. Oh, like a curfew. It was the first time in my life I had a curfew. Like my parents were very hands off. Okay. And I never had a curfew. I just came and went as I pleased. And I was <laughs> responsible and I did things. And then sometimes I stayed out really late because I was doing something. I was in like, there was no, hey, you know, you're grounded or hey, actually, they most of the time didn't even know when I came and went. And so, which is crazy because you were such a good kid. You know, like I was. Yeah. When I say I did stupid things, it was like, just like dumb teenager stuff. I wasn't right. out partying hard or yeah. anything like that. So it was it was easy for them to kind of let me do my own thing. I mean, have you had you ever drank alcohol before it was no. legal? Yeah. See, no. that's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. I didn't I've to this day I've never done drugs. We've talked about that. Right. And I have I did not drink until I turned twenty one. I did not have sex until I was married. And it was a lot of that kind of stuff. And I remember I went to the school because it it was like, because I was finally starting to allow myself to really start questioning things. Mm. I went from a fairly fundamentalist scenario into a deeply fundamentalist scenario. Yeah. We had to sign a waiver that said we wouldn't drink or do drugs or have sex or any of that stuff. Which is classic. Christian yeah. college, just so yeah, everybody yeah, yeah. knows. If you don't know that, that's we have three universities in the city who do that. <laughs> yeah. And they also do like random uh room checks. Yeah. I don't know if you were gonna get Oh into that, yeah, but. we got yeah. They whenever we so we went ch- to chapel on Tuesdays and Thursdays and they would do they would inspect our rooms while we were in chapel. Oh yeah. yeah. So at least you knew what was happening. I know a lot of people it was like you'd be sitting in there well, and they'd just be like everybody on top up. of it was on top of random. Like they would check our rooms to, one to make sure everyone went to chapel and then like oh, they could just do whatever yeah. they want while they were in there. Yeah. Man, that's crazy. I mean, that's literally jail. That's that's it, prison. It felt like it, especially because these dorms were so run down. It mm-hmm. was this place was a dump. And this was another thing that drove me crazy was it was in, as you mentioned earlier, this very impoverished part of town. Right. And I remember there was so much opportunity there to actually do good, to genuinely help people who needed help. Sure. And the entire focus was how do we raise money to improve things here, including build a wall? Let's build a wall around this place to keep out all the baddies yeah. so that, you know, and it, and it was very much a separate, like we wanted to separate ourselves from the world because that's the only way that we could stay pure, right? Where the, there that's was- strangely applicable to <laughs> now, present times. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and, but that was the first time I really started to see the hypocrisy in it. Yeah. And I did not fit in there. Mm -hmm. 
And so all of a sudden, all of the judgment and self-righteousness and holier-than-thou attitudes that I had projected towards everyone else, I saw pointed back at me for the first time. Mm, And I got a taste of my own medicine. Sure. And man, it did a number on me. I went to a really dark place. It's probably the darkest time in my life was when I was at this school. Yeah. It was really rough. I remember- Which you moved from that school eventually- to my house, <laughs> my parents' house. Right, yeah. They lived I, in our basement. I could only handle, so the rule was you had to be 21 to live off campus. Mm-hmm. I turned 21 my first semester there as a junior, and I moved off campus as quickly as possible. I moved into what I lovingly, not so much, refer to as the crazy house. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> crazy stories. You got to tell one of them. Tell it for the, for the <sighs> listeners. Okay, so. You can tell them one about the, the fire. Okay, so. <laughs> This was the end of this time there. I We moved into a house that was owned by a couple that I was introduced to from church. Mm-hmm. And it was right off campus, so it was really close. And I rented a room there with two other people my age who were renting rooms. One of them was a friend of mine who went to school with me. Mm-hmm. I feel really bad now because the wife clearly had some mental health issues. Right. And it wasn't being addressed. And her husband was kind of like this hippie dude who was very non-confrontational and went with the flow, whatever. Yeah. And I remember like one time I I came home and apparently she had gotten really upset that we were all living there and she wanted us all to leave. She was very manic depressive bipolar kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I was in my room and she opened the door and started screaming. I mean, I barely interacted with her. I I'm very private. Didn't want anyone in my space. I can't, I kind of kept to myself. So um, then an Enneagram five's nightmare happened. <laughs> so she comes in and burst in your space. Yeah. And yeah. Scream, start screaming at me, like telling yeah. me that I need to leave and all this stuff. And he kind of comes and is like trying to get her to calm down, but she like pushes him away. And then she starts kicking my door into the wall and like makes a big hole with the doorknob in the wall. And I'm just, I, I don't know what to do. Cause I've never experienced this kind of thing before. Right. And I remember I looked at him like, you need to get her out of here. I don't know what I'm going to do, but like I, I had that. I was angry enough at that point where with everything that was going on in my life that I was like, I don't, I could snap. I don't know. You just need, you need to get her out of here. Yeah. And that was when I decided to leave, but, but was it, (laughs) well, I'd already decided to leave. And then shortly, shortly thereafter, I remember it was the, it was like early morning, I think. And I hear her yelling. Like, mm-hmm. like screaming, like getting everybody up. I'm like, what is going on? And so I got up, got out of bed, went into the kitchen and looked out the back window and I could barely stand in front of it because it was so hot. And what, so in their backyard, and it was a sizable backyard, but on the other end, there was this alley and the alley led up to what used to be like an old, because these were all like turn of the century homes. In right. this. It's an historic neighborhood in this mm-hmm. area. Yeah. And there's this old kind of garage and the husband had built this shed on top of it because he was a contractor. This was around the recession mm-hmm. and this was, you know, this was 2009, I think. Yeah. 2008, 2009, somewhere around there. Right. And so they had bought this house to flip it and then they couldn't because of the recession and all this stuff. And so he was kind of picking up odd jobs, doing contracting work. And so he built this shed. It was like two story shed out of scrap stuff that he got from all these different jobs that he did. Okay. And that's where he kept all of his tools, kept all this stuff, kept, they had this iguana that they had in this giant cage. <laughs> okay. Of course they did. <laughs> and uh, so the, the iguana was out there. Yeah. 
what had happened was apparently the heating lamp on the cage, the iguana knocked it off and it fell into a can of paint and just sent the whole thing up. Uh, Um, R.I.P. Iguana. So I look out the window and this thing's probably, I don't know, 30, 40 yards away. Right. And I can barely see it. It's so hot. And then the, the flames are up above these huge trees. Like, I mean, I'm talking like 30, 40 foot flames. Like, this. right. Like yeah. Massive, massive mm-hmm. fire. And he's out there with a, a water hose trying to put this thing out. I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> and there's, I, a, there's an analogy. There's, oh, a, there's a lesson in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I felt, I, I feel bad for him now because all of the tools mm. that he used, he, and they had actually just bought a second house that was fire damaged. And all the tools that he was going to use to fix up that house burned up in this fire. Oh, man. And I'm like, <laughs> wow. So, yeah, needless to say, I was out of there really fast. But I couldn't stay on campus more than a semester. One, because it was outrageously expensive for the dump that it was. Yeah. And two, just the ridiculous rules. Like, I couldn't go home for the weekend without written permission. So, if, like, my mom called me on a Friday night. After the office had closed and yeah. didn't open up again until Monday, I was not allowed to go home. I would have gotten demerits for going home because I would have gone home without permission. Like I could not leave campus. That's yeah. Yeah. Okay. And just different things like that. Like yeah. stuff that does not make any sense. It drove me insane. And I had to get out of there. So then I moved in with a friend of mine from work. I was working at the airport at that time mm-hmm. and lived in his parents' basement for about a month, month and a half. And then I was clearly wearing out my welcome there. Or there well, originally, we I moved into his apartment, but then his lease was up. And so we had to live with his parents. And then just temporarily, because we were going to get a new place, and that place fell through. That's right, because that, that that was near the airport, that house. It was close. Closer. Yeah, his, his apartment was. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah I, well, I helped you move out of that place. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Okay. Uh, so then I moved in with you. Yeah. And we've talked about that. Well, no, you moved you moved downtown into the... No, I moved... Oh, this was after. I, I moved... Okay, sorry, I'm, I'll stop talking. Go ahead. Yeah. So I moved into the the Roach Motel after um, I call it the Brotel. The it was like seventies shag carpet. It was. And yeah, it was like we had and we literally had roaches living in the microwave. And it was six or seven dudes living on two sides of this um, duplex. Each side had two bedrooms. Uh, so mm. I, I paid more to have my own smaller room. So, because the other room is bigger, but two people had to share it. it. It was not big enough for two people to share. It definitely wasn't. I remember that. Um, but it was it was an interesting place. It was uh, a good experience. <laughs> <laughs> so I was in this weird place while I was there, though, because, like I said, I was acing all of my systematic theology classes and all my seminary level stuff. And I was taking like church history and what really was Baptist church history. Right. And I read through the entire Bible like twice while I was there and uh, memorized a ton of verses and just did all the stuff. Yeah. And at the same time, so in my head, I was still building up this framework, but my experience was very contradictory to what the theology was supposed to be about, which Mm. is about love and forgiveness and helping others and all of that stuff. And I was seeing none of it in the setting and it was really wearing on me. And I went to a, like I said, a very dark place and... It's hard to tell this story without the relationship piece of it, mm-hmm. but I want to save the relationship piece for <laughs> another conversation. So after my junior year, that summer was really the, the darkest place. So I turned 21 and I started like partying for the first time in my life. 
With me. <laughs> with you. <laughs> and it was also my first time partying. We learned how to make Long Island iced teas we together. Did. We did. <laughs> uh, I went through this like six month party phase and then I was just kind of over it. Yeah. Um, but it was a pretty it was a pretty hardcore six months for a little while. You introduced while. me to beer for the first time though. I did, that's right. And I was introduced to beer by our pastor for the first time. <laughs> oh, were you? Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> that's funny. Um yeah, so That um, I never knew. The first yeah, the first beer I drank was a Yingling. Same. Because yeah. be, that's yeah. what you introduced me to. Yeah. Yingling was the first beer. Thankfully, I will say the church that we were at at the time, it was good for me because it was definitely not fundamentalist. And there were, you know, there are issues. Well, not like, yet. It was early days. There were issues, you know, like every, every every place has issues. Right. But actually, the thing that I liked about that church was that from the very beginning, I had like the leadership took an actual interest in me and like invested in me on a personal mm. level and like tried to help mentor me, even though I wasn't given anything in return. That was the first time I really experienced that in that kind of level. Mm. And it, it helped me. I remember when I was going through this dark time, I went and saw one of the pastors and it was the closest thing to therapy I'd ever had at that point. And mm. I went and I like fessed all this stuff to him. And it's the first time I ever really like opened up fully and like told someone everything that was going on in my life. Yeah. Uh, but up until this point, I, I also want to say before I went down to Chattanooga, I talked about this before I kind of compartmentalize my life Yeah, and keep some people in this bucket, some people in that bucket and only let certain people see certain things. And then mm. when I went down to Chattanooga, it was the first time that I was living in a place where no one knew me and yeah. I could completely put on a full facade, like not let anybody in. Right. And I took that to the extreme uh, in this scenario and it really did a number on me. And I went to this pastor and he helped me work through that and like genuinely helped me. But then I had this experience where I guess I saw how legalistic I had been and my foray into partying was like a rebellion against that. Cause I was so angry. And then I guess I felt grace for the first time, I think was what I experienced in in the fall where I had, I'd gotten this job at this nonprofit and it was a really great job. And I basically had spent six months giving God the finger in a way yeah, and then, and then was quote unquote blessed with this job. And it just, it, it, for the first time made me, it separated that, I guess the, the works based theology. Right. And, mm. and I felt, and I felt grace and, and there was something that shifted in me in, in, in that point. And I started to just let go of a lot of the things that I've been holding on to in terms of the, the shame that was placed on me, like that's what I'm, I'm realizing now, especially is shame never really came naturally to me, but I was so pressed on me mm. all growing up that once I like was able to let go of it, it was no longer really an issue for me, but I felt like I was starting to heal in a way. And this change, Amy actually knows. So we were, we were kind of in a friend circle at this time and she wanted nothing to do with me, but then we went a little while without talking and then I saw her again and we kind of, I had changed. And so the way that I phrased it at the time was God changed my heart. And then she saw that in me. And so it was literally like God brought us together. Yeah. And so we hit it off really quickly at that point and started dating really quickly. The day before we officially started dating, I opened up a savings account to buy a ring and we were engaged within eight months. And, um, yeah, it was not long. It was not long. And we were, I think we were married like seven months after that. So it was, you know, we got, Jeez. so we started dating February of 20, let's see, 2009. And we got married in April of 2010. And there were a couple of things that happened that really started to accelerate this process for me. 
we were at the church that you and I met at and she never really got plugged in there and she wasn't really feeling it. And so as a newlywed couple, we wanted to find a place that was like our church rather than her coming into my church, mm-hmm. you know? And so we left that church, joined another one, and it was a much bigger church and it was more performative, but we did get plugged into a small group that we actually liked and we made some friends there. But the people in the small group thought differently than me about some things and kind of exposed me to some new ideas. Mm-hmm. And I remember they turned me on to this book called Pagan Christianity. Mm, yes. And this was, I read this book and the premise of this book is that most of what we do in church comes from a pagan origin. Right. So that means from the culture, not from scripture or whatever. And yep. what they say is that a lot of that is redeemable for Christ, but some of it is not redeemable for Christ because it goes directly against apostolic principles. And it laid out like, these are the, like the 10 things and these are all things that we do. And it, it opened my eyes to... Like really, well, I wouldn't say it opened my eyes so much as it helped me have a language for the things that I had been sensing, but couldn't quite like put into words what I was seeing and what, what I felt was wrong. Mm -hmm. And it helped me to really see that and clarify that. So that was happening at the same time. The other thing that was happening was I'm a newlywed and my new wife, I didn't realize this really until we got married, but she had these terrible nightmares. Like pretty much anytime she closed her eyes, Mm. she would see just graphic images of people getting like brutally murdered and like Mm. torn apart. And just was really at the time I thought it was something demonic or something along those lines. Yeah. And I remember I would pray for her every single night before she went to bed for over a year, our first year of marriage and pray that God would relieve her of that. Because she was such, she's such a sweet person. Like, yeah. Why? Like, she does not deserve to experience this essentially torture. Yep. And I prayed 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 and nothing ever changed. That's when I really started to doubt, you know, my relationship with God and who is God and what does this really mean? But there was still a lot going on in my life. You know, this is around the time when I left my first job to start my own business the first time and then failed miserably. And then we ended up out across the country. And I started working, and this is in the Northwest, and I started working at a Bible software company. Mm -hmm. And I think that like my friends and family who knew me from like the conservative circles thought I went, I moved out to the Northwest and I got super liberal. And like, I don't think I haven't actually told anyone that I'm not a Christian anymore, but I think some people have kind of picked up on it. But I think they think that I went out there and then it happened to me. Like what happened? Actually, that's not what happened. I went out there and I was still in kind of a bubble because in this Christian world, but it was really interesting because I was around legitimate scholars from a lot of different camps. Yeah. It was a big company and I was exposed to a lot of different theology because at the time I was really getting into like the theology piece, it was along the same lines, but I was all of a sudden like working alongside Catholics never done that before. Mm-hmm. I was taught that Catholicism was a cult, right? but I, I really like these guys. So that's weird. Like there's some of my favorite people here. They can't be all bad. And yep. it was just all these breaking down of these, you know, well, to be fair, there's a lot of good people and really bad cults. <laughs> not <laughs> saying Catholicism is a cult. It's not, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just um, throwing that out there. So I was exposed to just a lot of different things that really challenged all the stuff that I'd grown up being taught Mm. inside of this like Christian bubble. And so it was really an interesting time for me. And then we moved back to Nashville 
And like I said, it was, I was kind of chipping away a little bit at a time. And then fall of 2015 is when I found out I was going to be a dad. Mm. And we've talked about that before in the parenting episode. So if you haven't heard that, go listen to that story. Cause that's a fun one. Yeah. Inform the next part of this story. <laughs> <laughs> but through that process, I started unpacking everything and I can't not unpack my faith and religion as a part of that. And sure. And like, and the way that you've been brought up, like you were th- obviously thinking about how you were raised and how right. people before you were raised and how everybody, you know, has been raised. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I went back to the beginning, mm-hmm. right? I went, kind of went back to first principles and I'm like, can we just take a fresh look at everything? And I realized how much I had built this house of cards and I started to try to find some answers mm-hmm. and I found community that we both got to be a part of other people who are going through the same thing at the same time. And that was so helpful because going through this process of whether you call it deconstructing or leaving your faith or or questioning or doubt or whatever, it it can be a really painful thing. And it can be because you're basically letting go of, if you grew up in it, you're letting go of an identity that you've had your whole life. Yeah. And to let go of an identity an actual identity that you are, you've, you've taken on this thing that you've wrapped into yourself. Nobody really understands that until it happens to them, how actually traumatic that is. Yeah. Another problem is it's not just your identity. Usually it's the identity of your significant other and your family and your community and maybe even your job. Your family. Yeah. Everybody attaches themselves to the identity of who you are and the belief structures that you've, you've put in place. Yeah. And I've seen so many people get ostracized from the church because they don't sign on to the belief structure and they're equally yoked as I believe. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And, and so, you know, there's there, and I think that's why most people don't go through this process is because once I started pulling that thread, I couldn't let it go. No. And you can't, you can't stop it one way or another. Once you start, once you get to that place where you realize this, that you start asking the hard questions or whatever the thing may be like, it's going to happen whether you like it or not. It's just whether or not you're going to have control of it or not. Yeah. And I think that the real breaking point for me was when I took a step back and said, when I really started to dig into the history of the version of Christianity that we have in this, you know, and and this lens that we're, we're talking through or looking through is, is very much the evangelical Western Christianity, you know, lens. I know that there are people from all kinds of religions and, and they may or may not have similar stories, but this framework, this version of Christianity really is not very old. Right. It's so easy when you grow up in it thinking like, oh, this is, this is the reality. And the people who don't realize that are just crazy. Cause obviously it, this is true. Cause you're indoctrinated with it at such a small age right. or such a young age. So if you look at the, like the Protestant church and just the whole idea of sola scriptura, which is, you know, this idea that scripture is an errant, infallible, all mm-hmm. that. Yeah. That's not very old. Right. And if you look at what was going on in the world at the time that that happened, and you can easily see how they came out of that and why they doubled down on it with everything that was going on at the time with just, you know, that's when archaeology was really starting to uncover a lot of things that, you know, was showing that the Bible is historically, it's not exactly accurate in the way that they paint things. Science was really, it was the scientific revolution. <laughs> yeah. And we were discovering all the stuff about our world that some of it seems to really contradict, you know, and then you have the issue of slavery, right? Which was um, in the Bible makes it look like 
slavery is perfectly okay but kind of the way of life yeah yeah, but then you start to realize that there's a real moral issue with it and so you you know people are confronted with all of these contradictions and there's kind of going back to what we were just talking about a second ago when your identity is wrapped of it you either pull the thread and it all comes apart or you double down and you harden down and you just like don't listen to anything else yeah white knuckle through it. yeah and when i started to realize that and i looked at the vast history of the church and kept going back and realizing the history that i was taught like in seminary was such a filtered, highly biased version. Right. And that's another thing too, that I wanted to touch on here was like so many people in the church, they look at like pastors and scholars as if they're sources of truth. And this all must be true because they all, you know, kind of say similar things, but the system that churns these people out, they're a product of that system Mm. and kind of exposed that farce for what it was in my own life. When I realized like I went through all this and I was taught all this stuff and I, and now I see that like, that's not even remotely accurate. Mm-hmm. And and here's all the evidence that's showing that that is not remotely accurate. And, yeah. and it just started to crumble all of it. It's like when you get out of grade school and you realize that the entire history you've ever been taught about the U.S. is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's very similar. It's like, whoa. Right. Like we're awful. <laughs> you know? um, yeah. It's just or a crazy I, re- thing. I remember one of the, I had an awesome history teacher in college. And one of the first things that we talked about was that we had a, open discourse about Helen Keller and, um, and how, and what really is around whether or not we, the hierification of historical figures. Mm. And she is kind of propped up as like this person who overcame these crazy odds to become like a successful member of society, despite all of her, you know, disadvantages and all this stuff. And what they completely leave out is that later in life, she became a radical socialist Mm-hmm. because and like said that like i couldn't have done this except for my privilege and and all the history books are just like they completely oh yeah leave that part of it for sure out. and i it's so funny I, I remember very few things from school but i remember that mm-hmm. um because the way that it was taught well in a similar way actually when i was in seminary i can take your early evangelical history a step further one of the things that always stuck with me in that regard was I remember sitting in a class where we we were taught about the Gnostic Gospels mm-hmm. yeah. and how and essentially how the Council in Nicaea in you know the three hundred A.D. Mm-hmm. three twenty one or three twenty three something like that somewhere around there. yeah the whole thing was built around this idea of like politicians getting together and deciding what books of the Bible should be included in the Bible that's when they created the Bible <laughs> and was like this is these things don't make sense for us and this you know this doesn't serve us politically so we're not going to include these things. And there was a guy, I, I want to say his name is Arius. I haven't thought about these things in years. <laughs> um, who, I mean, was this crazy person who was so passionate about this idea that um, he was trying to get this doctrine in there that Jesus was created, not always existed. And he had this this phrase called, "It was there was a time when the sun was not. And that was his S-O-N. And that was his big phrase. He put it on like, his own sign and he stood on the top of the tables and danced and had this whole song around it and had this whole thing. He would, he would get people that was following him and would parade around the, the building that the council was taking place in to chant that there was a time when the sun was not. And this whole idea that like God created the sun, it was not a Trinity. There is no such thing as a Trinity. He did not want that. It, he, he believed that that was not an accurate doctrine. And he was, essentially completely rejected and excommunicated. And it was, it was a doctrine that was thrown out completely because they were like, no, the Trinity works for us. This is this idea of Trinity works in, in this overarching story that we want to tell 
and used politically. And so, and there's a lot of things behind that, of course, and I'm, I'm simplifying it, but mm-hmm. there's things like that. And so for me, I remember sitting in that class and going, wait, politicians put the Bible together for their own good. <laughs> <laughs> wait, <laughs> they were wait. telling me all these things and I was like, Wait, I've always been told the Gnostic Gospels are things we don't read because they're, they're so bad. They're yeah. evil they're because heretical. it talks about a, hu- a created Jesus. Yeah. It's essentially what the Gnostic Gospels are. So well, that was, yeah, that was and, him. And that was Arius. Before I even got into any of that, I just realizing that the Bible is not an errant. Right. <laughs> and and anytime I, I tried to reason through this while I was in school. And this for a Christian, especially an evangelical, is yeah, like heresy. Yeah, it you is. You have to realize you're you're committing the biggest crime ever by trying to right. believe this, right? Because that's the one thing we can rely on, sola mm-hmm. scriptura, like right. The and and realizing that it is, it was you know written by humans with specific views, having a specific conversation, trying to make specific points, and then was edited by specific people trying to make specific points at certain times in history. And it's a conversation that's happened over thousands of years. Not to mention the endless amounts of translations that have happened from dead languages. Yeah. And so, (laughs) and, and you're missing all this context and you can have these experts, but like it's, very much an art form rather than a science. It is, yeah. And even the people who try to translate the language, like it's still dead languages. They're still translating it to the best of their knowledge in a time that has no correlation to when it was written. So it's all interpretation. Right. So let me kind of back up a second. So that was that was the the breaking point for me where it really started to really fall apart. But the interesting thing that happened as a result of this was let me ask you this. What would you say if you could if you could sum up in one word, is the goal of evangelical Christianity. Perfection. I don't know. There's a lot of things. Yeah. So sanctification. Sanctification. Sanctification is the the word you're like. So it's the idea that we become like Christ. Right. Yes. And, and so we talk about like the, the gifts of the spirit Mm -hmm. and you know, that's, that's the evidence that you're becoming like Christ. So being more loving and patient and, and all of those things. I started to go down this path where, I was walking away from the idea of God. And the weird thing was that when I started, it was like I felt like God was taking me in that direction Mm. until there was no God. And prior to all of this, the way I viewed like atheists or agnostics or people, I, I, I thought that, I mean, I was taught that they were basically evil and they're trying to to tempt people away. Sure. Yeah. Like they have this agenda. Yeah. They have this agenda and all this stuff. Um, And that the only way to be good to be a good person is to be in a relationship with God. You can't do it on your own. You're never enough. Exactly. And the, the farther I walked from God, the more I started to look like Christ. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's like all the things that we talk about, Mm -hmm. like I started to care about, other people in the world. I started, I felt like I was seeing colors for the first time. It was, Mm. I was so much more compassionate and patient and loving and joyful. And all this stuff was coming out as a result of letting go of my faith. Sure. It took a while to really reconcile that because it didn't make any sense to me. It was completely opposite of everything that I had grown up believing. But because of the experience, it didn't take very long for me before I really started to embrace it. And I let go and I really moved into this world of scientific materialism where information we can take in with our five senses, like this is all of reality. Right. And man, that was so freeing. It was this place of rest for me. And it was the first time I felt like I could fall in love with science 
Mm. And I was essentially taught that science was our enemy. Yep. <laughs> and constantly trying to disprove yeah, everything. And and I would be interested in this stuff, but I couldn't let myself go there because I knew that once I started, I, maybe I knew this unconsciously, like it would start this process and, and I just wasn't ready for that. But I started to just devour everything I could about science and anything that helped me really make sense of the world now that I had no God to tell me what was what and what no Bible, right? And for a long time, like I had already left the church at this point after we moved from Chattanooga. So 2011, I, I hadn't gone to church, but I finally let go of it all. And I don't remember how long it was. It was probably a couple of years. It was, it was very much like what we see is all there is, what we can measure, what we can sense with our five senses. And it was a great world for a while. Like I loved it. Yeah. And it really helped me. Build relationships with people that I would never have had relationships with before. And it broadened my horizon. And I'm so grateful for that time in my life. And as painful as it was at times, I'm a completely different person and so much better of a person for having gone through it. raised in the fundamentalist Christian church. My mother at the time was a diehard born-again Christian. And as early as age five or six, I remember asking questions like, what if God isn't real? What if the Bible isn't true? And being told, oh, just pray to God and ask him to help you overcome your unbelief. That was the, the solution I was taught. And I thought at the time, that's so silly because why would I pray to someone who might not exist if I'm asking if they don't exist? By puberty, around the age 11 or 12, I had sort of dismissed the entire thing. And I know now quite a few ex-evangelical people who didn't realize that they'd been sort of brainwashed until their 20s or later. And I think it was my fiveness that allowed me to disregard some of the more suspect aspects of religion much earlier. In my later life, after having done a lot of therapy and self-work and self-exploration, meditation, etc., I will say that I have found spirituality easier to access. Definitely those things are difficult for me as a five, but my healthiest and most well, I do um, now consider myself to be a more spiritual person. So I think I'm skeptical of all, religion especially, but in the end that skepticism has helped me find you know, a a spirituality that works for me. difficult to engage with spirituality. I consider myself a pretty spiritual person, actually. I grew up religious in a Catholic household, so the foundation of having that belief 
kind of was always there in my life. But, you know, through whatever happens in life and whatnot, it just didn't vibe for me like Catholicism was not it. But it also definitely kind of helped me understand spirituality better because it's not necessarily the the religious aspect of it, but more so just kind of like the belief within yourself and how that in tune gets translated into like the universe and just kind of like that back and forth exchange of the energy that you kind of have going on. Yeah, oftentimes I feel like people, they don't really clock me as a spiritual or religious person, someone that kind of has those sorts of beliefs, just because I do tend to keep things very like black and white with my knowledge. And that's a big gray area. But, you know, spirituality is just as important as having a basis and facts because it is ultimately just like the belief within yourself and your place in the universe. And if you don't have that, then it brings a lot of stress along. thing I for a long time before I quit the church and quit just the whole thing I always saw the disconnect and the um, the distance between people in churches always saying that they loved others right like the mm. whole thing was love God love others that's what every some form of that was always in churches and kind of like their motto but I never felt loved. I never had friends. Really, I mean, there's there's people, the friendships that I made in churches that were real friendships, I'm still friends with. The pastor that I referred to from the really, really awful church where we all got fired at once, I'm still, I, I would still consider myself friends with him today. He came to one of my shows two weeks ago, mm-hmm. right? Like, and I hadn't seen him in, at this point, probably two years. And I can think back and remember those times when we were friends, not because we were Christians or not because we both believed in the same thing. We were friends just because we were friends. I mean, but even then, were we ever really friends in the church or were we just going through the same things? Mm-hmm. And were we ever actually able to be friends because we weren't at, we couldn't be honest with each other yeah. unless we were willing to risk our entire identity. And that's something that I learned very definitively in the church before that, when I was basically publicly shamed and ridiculed. So I knew that I could never be honest with anybody about anything. And with that was, I already kind of knew that, but it was reinforced very strongly. And I built a very, very, very thick walls. And so I don't think I ever had friends really in churches or in, in any point in my life until the whole God concept fell apart and I was no longer living for God. I was living for myself and I had to decide what that was and what that looked like. And I always had that disconnect because I always used to say in churches, especially towards the end, I'd be like, I felt more love and acceptance and overall warmth from people in bars at open mic nights and in clubs and places that Everybody in churches always talks so negatively about, but that's, you know, I've felt more love and acceptance from those people, from minorities, from different groups that have had to go through things just to survive. There's more love there than there ever, ever has been in the church for me. Leaving the church only reinforced that because then when my Sundays were free, I could spend that with people and I could do things that I never could do before and I could decide that I was going to redefine my very existence. And that was such a powerful thing. It was something that I never expected to be able to do until I quit all of that and decided, you know, for a while, I'm just not going to worry about what I believe in. 
It's just not going to be, it's not going to cross my mind. I don't want to think about it. I'm just going to exist and live and be and see what happens. So it's interesting because having gone through that experience and then it was around that time too that I experienced a lot of that towards the end of my na- my time in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And so when I lost my job up there and decided that the only real course of action was to move back home, which I really didn't want to do, but I didn't really see any other way around it. And so I moved back to my hometown and pretty quickly started dating someone who had no spiritual baggage at all because she never went to church. And honestly, it's... <laughs> That was my favorite thing about her in the beginning was like, <laughs> she did not understand any of my trauma. And I loved that because I didn't have to compartmentalize. We just didn't talk about it. Like it was just easy. And I could talk about it with her when I was ready and she was there to listen, but she didn't have her own baggage or her own upbringing fighting against the things that I'd been through or the things that I had rejected or any of those things. And so that was interesting, but I moved in with my parents to make it a little easier to get back on my feet and find work and start over Yet again, while also wanting to be close to my grandmother. So, and mm-hmm. we've always called her Granny. So I will from here on, henceforth, call her Granny. She also lived with my parents. So I thought, you know, it's kind of a win win. I can spend more time with her. She's getting older. Before that, she had had an incident where she fell on her head and it was a really terrifying situation and she was never quite the same. So I thought, you know what? It's kind of a win-win. I can move home. I can spend some time with my family. I can get back on my feet. I can spend time with her and help take care of her a little bit and just be with her. So I had been living at home for a little over a year when granny's uh, health began to decline. Uh, Thanksgiving of 2017 would be the last we would spend together. And she would be gone less than a month later, which was just crazy. I remember she was helping my mom less than two weeks later. We found out that she had cancer and the doctors were like, we really shouldn't do any, we can, we could do treatments if you want. And I remember sitting in the room and her going, you know, I've had a good life. I've had a long life. I think I'm all right. And sitting there and hearing her say that after everything that I had been through and all of these things and me, it didn't hit me in that moment, but there's something very intimate and holy feeling about a moment when somebody come becomes completely okay with death, like a hundred percent in that moment. I didn't recognize it as that. I just recognized it as a very deeply emotional and intimate moment that I was not ready for. And hearing her say that and being like, she just said she's going to die and she's okay with it. I didn't fully commit to that moment because it was, it was still too separated from me. I didn't know when she was going to die. Little did I know it was two or three weeks later. So it happened very quickly. It was so advanced at that point. She declined very quickly. So she'd be gone a month later. And it was just something I did not know and realize in that moment. But my granny spent my whole life telling me the same stories over and over as old people do. And from the time I was very little until I was an adult, um, she would repeat the same stories to me about my parents about her and my papa, as, as we lovingly called him, about me and my brother, about everything. Until one day, she stopped telling me those stories. And I would ask her if she remembered them, and she would look at me blankly. So that was when I began telling her the same story she had told me my whole life. I told them to her over and over and over again. And we would sit on my parents' porch, and I'd repeat her stories back to her. And she'd look at me with the biggest grin. It's like she was hearing them for the first time, but I was telling her her life, which was a really weird experience that leads into this whole next part. So there was 
no one I was closer with really in my life than, than my granny. And I'm not sure I ever really knew how much she meant to me until she was gone, which is classic human existence. And being the Enneagram five that I am, I distinctly remember being in like hyper analyzation mode when she had begun what they call the transition and from life to death. And it took her about two weeks to make that transition. I wrote a song about her during this time and got to play it for her before she was no longer coherent. And that was definitely a special time that I was thankful for. What I didn't realize was that I was burning all of those final moments I spent with her into a long-term space in, in my memory and burying them deep within my subconscious and just setting myself a little, creating for myself a little time bomb, ticking time bomb. <laughs> All the times she held my hand tightly like it was her last time, the times where I retold her the stories she had told me growing up, the hugs, the cheek kisses, the look on her face and her final moments. It was all there just kind of waiting to come up again in the most opportune moment. And one day, I've told this story before, I was taking a shower and my mind was wandering through thoughts as it often does in the shower and... Somehow I wandered onto thoughts about death in the afterlife. Now, this may come as a shock, but up until this point, I had never really considered the afterlife. Not really, because I had always been given such a nice, neat framework for the afterlife. We die, we go to be with God forever, the end. That's an easy framework to accept when you're in church. But in this moment in the shower, I realized that I had slowly dismantled that whole framework in my mind. I didn't realize it until I thought about my granny. I thought about those final moments with her, and I thought about her taking her last breath. And then I thought about what happened after that, which to the best of my knowledge at that point was nothing. Nothing happens. We just die. And it was at this point that my mind immediately jumped to the idea of me dying. I had the very obvious and simple realization that one day I will die and cease to exist. My mind could not wrap around this idea. Everything broke down. I've never experienced anything like that. I immediately had such a visceral reaction. I feel like visceral is the word of this episode. I've said it so many times. Uh, <laughs> a visceral reaction that I fell in the floor and couldn't breathe. I had this panic attack of this monster panic attack of all panic attacks. I thought I was having a heart attack, genuinely thought I was dying, which only made it worse, as you can imagine. <laughs> and once I regained my control and centered myself and was able to move out of that, that panic, I decided that I couldn't truly deal with all of that emotion. And I buried it so I could process it in pieces to make it safer. It's the most five thing ever to do about in that moment. And that process really only backfired. And because what I found was that for what seemed like an indefinite future, I would have many panic attacks over and over again throughout the day, every day for months, all the time. There wasn't a moment in any day that wasn't overtaken by the thought of me not existing anymore. And it completely wrecked me hmm. so much so that I went to the doctor thinking that I was having heart palpitations and there was something wrong with me. And she was like, you just have intense anxiety. You've probably always had this. And I was like, no, I haven't. And then immediately my entire life flashed before my eyes. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I have, I've always been anxious. It's just really coming to the surface now. 
And that following New Year's Eve, my brother was in town. I told him about my death anxiety and everything that I'd been through and what I was experiencing. And he looked off for a minute into the distance, as he does, looked at me and said, well, I think of death the same way I think about the year 1942. And I naturally responded, what do you think about the year 1942? And he said, nothing, because I wasn't there for it. (laughs) (laughs) And at first, this absolutely devastated me and made things so much worse. (laughs) Because then I had more things to think about. I was bookending my experience. I was like, you're right. I wasn't there for that either. Where was I? But a few months later, I I remember I woke up one morning and that same thought that my brother had shared began to actually roll around in my mind and I was able to kind of process it. And I was finally separated enough to actually start analyzing my feelings and tearing them apart and deciding how I actually feel about the idea of death. And that began a long journey that I know is still going on today. Um, since that New Year's Eve, and I guess it was 2018, I have gone through multiple phases of belief. I've landed in a somewhat functional place for now that sits kind of neatly between Buddhism, agnosticism, and humanism, I think. Hmm. And I have a deep appreciation for the world around me and the people who inhabit that world. I choose to live by very intentional moral code, I would say, of treating others with love and respect, as well as kind of in nature and all who exist in nature. Not and most importantly, not because some God may or may not have created it or in, and designed it for me to take care of it or do those things, but because I want to be the type of person who leaves the world better than I found it. And I never understood, I've heard that phrase so many times in my life, and I never understood it until all of my belief systems were stripped away. And I just cared about how I exist in the world for, for me and for those around me. And that completely changed the way that I treat everybody, including myself. My life has been reshaped by the concept of being a force for good in the world just because it's a better way to exist. It's also, in many ways, an easier way to exist, Hmm. and not because some god in the sky is telling me to do that. I think that that's something that is a completely defining moment for me where it changed, changed my direction with everything. And I would say that without the motivation of trying to win God's favor, with my good deeds, my intentions, and my love uh, for others. My love for others comes from a much purer place. If I'm nice to you, it's because I want to be. <laughs> mm. Not because I feel like I have to be. Yeah. Um, losing my faith was by far the most painful and devastating thing I have ever experienced. And yet, I wouldn't take it back for anything because I'm still working through my trauma. There are days I regress. There are days I still get triggered by Christian buzzwords that happened the other day. Or feel as though I come face-to-face with my abuser, both metaphorically or literally in some instances, which also happened the other day. (laughs) But I feel stronger because of it. And I know I can move past it, I guess, which is not something that I didn't feel before until very recently. But when I experienced such a long-lasting and intense anxiety surrounding death... It awakened in me such a deep and truly, I would say, beautiful appreciation for all living things and each moment that I get to experience while I am alive. And I never had that before. Everything was looking ahead to some other existence or some other plane or other lifetime in heaven or a new earth. Yeah. But now I see that this might be all there is. And at the end of the day, I'm okay with that because this life is beautiful and I experience everything with gratitude and humility. Something that always comes to mind is it's it's something I'm in the middle of. You know, I it actually is what brought up this idea of me wanting to read through this book is Ram Dass said, we're all just walking each other home. 
And it's this idea that we're all just help. Everybody dies. We're all going to get there. Yeah. It's just, how do we get there? We're all doing it. We're all helping each other to get there. And, and it's a holy moment that we all have to accept. And the anxiety around death is actually what started my reconstruction towards very intentionally putting together a belief structure that makes me feel like I can be a better person and give me some kind of moral code because without it, I don't have one really. I have this general idea of what a good person should be, but I don't really have like a conscience or some voice in my head telling me like, this is right or wrong. I don't, like you said before, I don't feel shame or feel like guilty (laughs) about anything. So, but I know that I want to be a functional human in society with people who care about me and I care about other people. So putting something in place that helps me with that. And also it's just really fun to believe in other things. Sometimes it's, it's, it's not because my life and my eternal existence depends on it. It's Mm. like, what if reincarnation exists? I love that idea. What if there are millions of gods? I don't know. Like maybe there is, maybe there isn't. I, I, I choose to stay more on the agnostic side at this point in time in my life because I don't want to be so arrogant as to say there's not a God. I acknowledge that maybe, maybe there's a higher, maybe there is, a higher form of uh, existence and a power that holds everything together. And whether that's God or we want to call it God, whatever that thing is, I won't say that I'm arrogant enough to say it doesn't exist. So Hmm. that's kind of where I am. So as a youngin, (laughs) I was very involved in the Christian Protestant church. And during that time, I read this book, Uh, by Martin Luther King Jr. called Strength to Love. And I came across some passages that really spoke to me. For example, it says, The call for intelligence is a call for open-mindedness, sound judgment, and love for truth. It is a call for men to rise above the stagnation of closed-mindedness and the paralysis of gullibility. And now he goes on to say things about how (laughs) nothing pains some people more than having to think, but we must think because there's no easy answers. And this next quote really spoke to me. He said, never must the church tire of reminding men that they have a moral responsibility to be intelligent. And that quote meant so much to me. I remember I went to my Facebook account and put it on my favorite quotes back when that was a really big deal on your Facebook profile. And I thought some people are going to see this and they're going to remember, oh, yes, we must, we must, we have a moral responsibility to be intelligent. But as I grew older, I got more and more disheartened with my church seeming to falling into fear and emotion and judgment and not being open to the other and accepting of others and really the truth and really researching the truth behind things. And I've had to learn that I can't tie my faith as a five into a church, and that's just not going to happen for me. It's now moved to a very personal space that is my own, and it's different, and it may not look like what my family would like it to look like, but it's mine, and that's okay. I would say it's pretty hard for me to engage with religion in general. It's just because I know that I don't know everything and I know that not everything can be logically understood by a human. So that's basically where religion is. As far as rituals and things go, I think that's where a lot of issues with religion go because rituals you have are rational. But as far as looking at religion and looking at morals 
and ethics and following those principles, I think that's easy for me to follow. That's logical, that's rational, that's that's a, a five thing, but to go into certain things where, say, a six would probably find that pretty easy, a five is going to always look at everything from a, a logical standpoint and question everything that they do and question everything that you do, and it's just how we work as a five. But the other thing, too, is it really is hard for us to understand or think about things that we can't see, we can't physically touch, and yeah, I mean, how do you understand something that isn't fully understandable? Good. I like that idea of there are different lenses that you can pick up yeah. to try out and, and like see, yeah, see what serves you well in that moment. Yeah. Um, and it's okay to change because, again, it's not yeah. my eternity doesn't depend on it. No one has the answer. Right. Exactly. You know? And no one person has the answer and we're all just kind of figuring it out together. Yep. Yeah. I love that. You know, I've been thinking about kind of going back to the next phase for me of it, it's, it's a little hard to talk about cause I feel like I'm, I'm in it. You know? Right. Yeah. Same. I mean, yes, I leave it open cause it's like you, at some point you get to where we are right now Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. we're not done. Yeah, we're not even right. close to yeah. done. Yeah. It, and it's in, in the place where I am is a lot of times it's really hard to put into words. Yeah. And, and I spend a lot of time thinking about how to put it into words so that I can actually communicate to other people. And going back to where I was before with the, the scientific materialism piece of it, one of the things that I really liked about it was it felt easy to get answers. Mm-hmm. And it gave a really simple explanation for why the world is so fucked up. <laughs> sure. <yeah. laughs> Where essentially like it's all random. We're all these physical, biological machines, essentially, and disconnected from one another. And it's survival of the fittest. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, our evolution just hasn't caught up with our society, like where we want society to be, essentially. And so that's where we get this, all this tension is that we're constantly fighting against our biology, kind of these lower forms of thinking versus the higher ideals that we have. And I like that it gave me... It's not untrue. (laughs) Yeah, and it's not. You know, I think that the danger in that for a five is... Nihilism. Nihilism. Yeah. Yeah. And every, you know, you can't really just stay there. I mean, you can, but you have to have a limit. You have to be able to have your own limit somewhere. Yeah. So what I like to say is it doesn't end with nihilism. It starts with nihilism. Mm, Yeah. So I had to strip everything down to get to the point where I looked into the abyss. As we know you love to do anyway. And was completely at ease with it. At one point, I tried to kind of put into a succinct way as possible, put into, because uh, I still don't consider myself part of any religion or any really belief system at this point. Yeah. Um, the whole notion of beliefs is kind of an archaic idea to me. At, sure. Yeah, and, I agree with that. But I came up with this framework that I like to, to go as a starting point, right? So first of all, the universe is meaningless. Mm-hmm. And I think you, you have to start there. If you look at where we are in just human existence, it's such like a tiny blip 
<laughs> and if you just look at the span of time and the way that life has progressed and will progress, where we're all just burn up in the sun, it, it erases everything. Like it, none of it means anything. Right. But as humans, we have this seemingly unique ability. And so it's unique as far as we know to in this meaninglessness, create meaning. Mm. Before when I would hear something like that, I don't know, it sounded kind of hopeless. Yeah. But now I look at that and I see that as it's very, it's actually really empowering, which means that I'm a co-creator of my life. Right. Yeah. You know? And, and so the universe is meaningless. We have a unique ability to create meaning. And sometimes we create meaning in such a way that we experience what we perceive as a transcendence above our five senses. Mm. And when we do that, sometimes we call that God. Yeah. And sometimes we call it other stuff. Yeah. Sometimes we call it love. You know? Yeah, that's true. Sometimes we call it a great trip. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's that's been the, the, the sort of base foundation for where I tend to be. Like whenever I'm allowing myself to have different thought experiments or maybe pick up a lens to, to see what it's like to view through, I, I usually come back to that place. And I will say that as comforting as it was for me to kind of live in this scientific materialism space, I couldn't actually stay there very long. <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to. But you can't just leave it at that. That's the problem. Well, yeah. See, the problem is that there are certain experiences that I've had in my life that I just can't really reconcile with that. Mm. At least at the point where our current scientific understanding. So I've talked about hypnosis. Yep. And I've shared how I've had some crazy experiences with that. Almost like non-ordinary reality kind of experiences. And it's it's so hard to put into words because when you're sort of working at that level, really kind of letting your subconscious mind drive things, it can be a bit nonsensical. And it's hard to know how you know things, right? It's not an analytical process. Right, <laughs> yeah. But sometimes they're just, like for lack of a better word, almost like downloads where it's just like, boom, I just, without thinking about it, like, oh, that's what that means. And it's like this deep truth that you feel in your bones. And which I feel like everybody can, can relate to in some way. I feel like most people have probably had an experience where they felt like something deep within them was telling them, oh, this is, this is how this is. Mm -hmm. Or you have this unexplainable intuitive moment about somebody else and you figure out yeah. a deep truth, whether that's your own subconscious being super analytical and just breaking the code and figuring out what somebody else is, what makes them tick or whatever the thing may be. But sometimes you just know things people. I mean, there's countless stories of human beings just knowing things and you have no idea how they knew that thing. Mm -hmm. Other than like, are all humans connected? Like, you mm -hmm. know, mothers knowing when their child around the world is in trouble or yeah. something. I mean, crazy so things. I, I, I have some stories yeah. um, okay. about like not quite that extreme, but the first story is I was doing a hypnosis session and it was something about like knowing yourself better or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty straightforward. And when I was going through it, I was listening to an audio and, and it has you walk up to a mirror and see yourself as you are and have a conversation with yourself. And so my subconscious placed me in this like really cool attic, like you'd see on like the Goonies or like, you know, I was thinking Lion Witch in the Lion wardrobe. Witch wardrobe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's a huge mirror 
And I walked up to it, fully expecting to see my reflection. But I did not see my reflection. Instead, what I saw was, as best I can describe it, almost like a charcoal-colored mist. If you've seen Lost, it's I was gonna say it kind of reminds, yeah, yeah. reminds me of like the smoke monster, but it wasn't quite like that. It was hard to explain. It wasn't like a smoke. It was like a um, charcoal-colored mist. It's the best I can put it into words. I mean, yeah, I get that vibe from you all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're a charcoal mist. <laughs> <laughs> and then it changed into a geisha. And then it changed again into a Japanese woman, a uh, middle-aged Japanese woman. I sensed that it was like in the 60s era, kind mm-hmm. of. And then it changed several more times into forms that I can't put into words because my brain couldn't process them. It's, it's as best as I can say. So like in the moment, I know that I'm looking at something. Like I, I'm, I'm looking at it. But at the same time, my... I, my analytical brain is like, I have no reference for anything at all that's similar to that. Mm-hmm. And so I like, as soon as it's gone, it's, it's gone because I can't store it because there's no model right. for it. It's actually new. It's actually new. Yes. Yeah. And it happened like three or four times, these different forms. And to this day, I can't, I still can't remember what they look like. I just know that I was viewing them. Yeah. And I came out of that. Like I was, I was like shaking. I Mm. was, it was, it was this intense, like mystical type experience, Mm. which I was, it caught me completely off guard because I was not expecting that or had any kind of reference. Yeah. yeah. yeah, It was just, it was just out of nowhere. And then I started to ask in my head, what was that? And before I could even consciously get the words through, it was like direct download into my brain. Those are your past lives. I did not know what to do. With that. <laughs> I'm like, I, I'm, I'm just going to set that aside for a little. While. I didn't tell anybody about this for, I don't know, like a year or two, yeah. I think. Yeah, I'm yeah. just going to set this aside because this is, you know, I don't want to sound like a crazy person, but at the same time, like I can't forget this experience. Mm-hmm. I consider myself a fairly, like I'm a skeptical, but open person. I like to take in a lot of information and then I just kind of see like, is there evidence for this? And yeah. I observe a lot and yeah. start to validate it. Yeah. Yeah. But there are just some things that like, how am I supposed to validate that? Yeah. <laughs> I could go, go down the scientific materialism route of understanding my brain and the things that the hallucinations that it can create and, and all of that stuff, but it doesn't capture the experience. Right. Like, it's like trying to hear a song just by looking at the sheet music. Like it's just not the same thing. Yeah. And there's sort of this emergent quality to it that I can't hand you a piece of paper and say, this is the proof that this was real. And what does real even mean? Like what, like when I experience something, like what does it mean to actually experience something in a real way? Like it's, it's so like reality feels so subjective most of the time. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I did though, kind of start looking for some answers to try to understand some of this stuff. And one of the things that I came across is honestly the most kind of compelling work that I've seen is out of the University of Virginia. I don't know if you've heard of their, I think, I believe it's called their like Department of Perceptual Studies. No. Where they, um, and they've been doing this, I think like 30 or 40 years, like it's a long time. Um, mm-hmm. They study out of body experiences and past lives. 
And they've got at least 1,300 well-documented compelling cases of people, for example, like people being completely brain dead on the operating table and then coming back and describing how the doctor was making certain movements and or they were describing scenes that were happening on like a floor or two above them Mm. or just stuff that what we know about our body, they should not have been able to pick up any sense that anything was happening. Yeah. Because their, their brain was shut off. Yeah. And then there are children and they've gone out and studied and verified them. Like research have gone out and verified everything that they're saying. Children who remember past lives with astonishing accuracy. One that I'm thinking of is there was this kid who said that he used to be in Hollywood. And so his mom like picked up this book of like old Hollywood pictures and stuff. And then he pointed and it's like, that was, that was me. And he started telling all these stories about him interacting with all these famous actors back in the day. And he was like a dancer um, in Hollywood. And so the researchers went out and they finally found out who the person was and verified that like, yeah, everything he's saying is actually accurate. And then he made a one statement that was like, Something like, I don't know why God would take a 61-year-old man and put him in this kid's body or something like that. And the paperwork said that the guy died when he was 59. Hmm. And so, like, why would he say that? And so, the researcher who was looking into this went back and talked to the family of the person, and which is who, like, verified a lot of these stories. And it turns out, like, the, I don't know if it was the birth certificate or some, some paperwork was off, and he actually was 61 years old. Oh. And there was no way that anyone else except the family knew that. And that's fun. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's all, there's like some really compelling evidence. Yeah. So let's just, just take that for a second and let's run with that. And let's say that like reincarnation is a thing. Mm -hmm. It's real. Yeah. What does that mean that we are? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Cause it automatically means we're more than our bodies. We're more than our physical selves. And so then you have to ask that question of, is our body generating consciousness? Or is our body like a receptor of consciousness? Mm, Because if reincarnation is like actually real, then it seems like it'd be more the latter. And that just opens up a whole other like. Because then we're just reflecting a version of ourselves that's existed much longer than this body has. Yeah. Or who the hell knows? Like, you know, like, and so kind of coming back around to in the beginning, we talked about you know, religion and spirituality and where the spirituality piece comes in is there's this saying that I feel like is just really trite at this point of like, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Yep. And I really like, I kind of cringe when Mm -hmm. I hear people say that. And I don't, if they mean it literally, it makes sense, but there is a difference. And I don't even know if I would consider myself spiritual at this point. Yeah. But the way that I think about those two things is spirituality is about understanding the relationships between things. So between, myself and others between myself and the earth between myself and the universe within myself, all, all these things, right? Yeah. Religion is the structures that we build around those relationships Mm -hmm. to try to protect them. And so I like to use the analogy of let's kind of take the religion piece out of it for a second. Let's say that, you know, there are two couples, one, they've never been married, but they live each day loving each other. And they're trying to help the other person become the best version of themselves. And they communicate openly and honestly and sacrifice for each other when out of love. And they're building a beautiful life together. And then you've got another couple who's married. They can't communicate honestly. 
They're both miserable, but they're committed to staying in the marriage. And neither of them are looking or helping the other person become the best version of themselves. They're just looking out for themselves. Which of those two couples are the most married? Right. Yeah. Right. It's the first one, right? So. Mm-hmm. I like to think about it like that because when you realize that the structure is not the thing, it's the relationship that's the thing. Right. And so this is why I don't judge people who are still part of religions because you can have a great relationship still within that structure, whatever those relationships are. There, I think that there are points where the structure contains it to where it can only grow so far. Yeah. And so you've got to make the choice of how much you want to grow in this lifetime. Mm-hmm. But the relationship is what the, the focus is. And that's how I think about when I'm looking at the world around me, I'm thinking in terms of what is my relationship to those things? What is, what is my relationship to my neighbors here in this neighborhood? What's my relationship to you? What do I want that to actually look like? And what am I committing to for those around me and for myself and for my family and for the greater good, whatever that means. And just thinking through like how I want to serve in that way. And I feel like when you start to like coming back around to the reincarnation piece, when you start to broaden your horizon, start to break down those, some of those structures, because I also, I also think science can be, so the scientific establishment can be some of those structures. And so when you start to break some of those down and expand what those relationships mean, that's when you start to grow as a person. What's well, kind of idea of like, if you're using the structure as a lens to see something in a certain way, and you're using it as a perspective, then it's all good. It's all healthy. It's fine. As soon as you start using the structure to identify with something or it be, it becomes the structure, right? Yeah. Then everything becomes the structure. The, the structure becomes the focus. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Then it's like you, you realize you've crossed that line into you lost sight of the thing you were trying to believe in. You're now just consumed. It's like, and I don't, it's not like being in the matrix, but it's like, I don't know, Stockholm syndrome where <laughs> you get lost in the world and you're no longer, it's like, no, it's like inception. <laughs> That's what it's like. Okay. You fall asleep and you forget you're dreaming and mm. you get stuck there. Inception is an interesting example though, because which is the dream and which is reality. Exactly. And I feel like we're constantly trying to get down to like, what is the base reality? It can be really frustrating to me, especially because I got started with science so late in my life. Yeah. And I, and I'm not a scientist. And right. if I hadn't had the constraints that I had when I was younger, I probably would have gone down a field similar to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what it would have been, but it, it would have been probably some science related field. But what I am learning about science um, these days, I'm, I'm super into quantum physics and that kind of stuff because that's like the source code, <laughs> you know, like yeah. the more you learn about that, like that's like the source code. And the danger of sounding woo woo. Like it just, it seems like we are really are all connected, like at a like source code level. Mm-hmm. And that is an interesting concept to me. And I can find ways to validate it in my life that seem really circumstantial and seem anecdotal, but there are a lot of little things. Like for example, one day Amy was having, she had a rough night trying to, to breastfeed. And I went out in the morning to get coffee for her was talking with the person at the drive-thru and the coffee place. And I told him about what was going on and she was having a rough night. And that's why I was out getting coffee for her and stuff. And he gave me two free drink tickets and he said his wife was breastfeeding too. And it was just like a form of solidarity. Like, you know, you guys take these, I know, I know what you're going through kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. 
So I pull up to the house, come in the door. She's in like the other side of the house. And I bring her the drink and the two drink tickets. And she had a smile when I walked in. I didn't mention them right away. She couldn't see them. But she told me after the fact that as soon as I walked in the door to the house, she knew that I had come back with something more than coffee and that it was some sort of free treat or something. Huh. And I got to say, Amy is one of those people that's like a highly sensitive, like almost empath type person. Right. There's a lot of little things like that where I'm just like, this happens, this kind of stuff happens too much for it to be some kind of coincidence, I feel like. Sure. But other stuff has happened to me where I'll pull into the driveway or I come pulling up to the house and a song will pop in my head. And then I'll get out of the car and I'll come inside and I'll hear that that's what they're, they're playing on the Echo. Like Amy and the kids are playing and it's the exact song, like right where I was. And it's, it's like almost mm, in sync. That's weird. And it's really weird. And that happens to me. That's happened to me multiple times. Yeah. To bring it all back around full circle, that Feynman quote, I'll read it again. I would rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. And when I started, it was very much the answers that couldn't be questioned. And my journey, I think, through religion as a five is breaking down everything that tried to put me in a box and force those answers on me so that I can start asking the questions that I want to ask. And in doing that, learning to be content when those questions don't have answers. Yep. Because I am I might not ever know how to, intuition works. Yeah. You know, I might not ever know if reincarnation is actually real. I don't know how to verify those things. And there's a tension there that my analytical smart brain wants to be able to stand up and say, I have the information. And so you can confidently go into the world and knowing that this is true, but I'm not going to have that. And so I've got to learn how to operate in the world and just gain my confidence from who I am rather than what I know. Yeah. It's really the only way to be a five <laughs> out of this conversation <laughs> or as a five can be out of this conversation. It's the only way to move on. So I don't have answers and I'm, I think I'm finally okay with it. I've just very recently come to a place where a switch flipped and all these things that I've been reading and learning about and trying to be okay. The things that I, when I was trying to basically self-medicate with knowledge for my death anxiety, because death was such a, I don't know why it was such a big thing. I mean, it was, obviously my grandmother's death was traumatizing and that was kind of what spurred it all on, right? But it's more than that because for me, when I was a Christian, death never really made sense. Not death itself, but what happened after we die? Like, how do we believe in that? Like, how do we believe in a whole other world? And how is that not considered fantasy when we they tell me that Harry Potter isn't real? You know what I mean? <laughs> Lord of the Rings is fantasy, but yet we believe in an entire heaven. So anyway, I digress. But when that was all taken away, I had to try to start filling that void of that I had created. And I started reading all these books and learning all trying to learn all these things. And it never really stuck because it's it was too new of a concept for me to try to get. And I read some books that were kind of like entry level into basically what we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes. And I think that I didn't get it until very recently, like maybe a couple of weeks ago, I woke up and I was okay if I died that day because I didn't know, I couldn't put it into words until I started reading the book that I'm currently in, which is uh, Walking Each Other Home by Ram Das, where... It's this idea where, and he wrote the book because he wanted people to be okay with death. Because if you are, if you, you know how to die, you know how to live. Mm. 
And the things that he says in this book resonated with me because it gave me words for the feelings that I had. I knew that something had switched where because I'm okay with death, it meant that I was okay with life. And if I'm okay with life, it means I'm okay with existing and I'm okay with dying. And it all kind of comes full circle. And I'm able to finally start getting out of my own way and letting separating myself from my ego, which mm-hmm. is something that it, it defines everything, right? It's, it's what we identify as ourselves, but really it's just our attachments to everything. And it wasn't until recently I started realizing how not attached to all the things that I have in my life I actually am. But the people and the experiences that I've had and the knowledge that I've had was my kind of like last level of attachment that was really hard for me. And it's still hard for me. I'm not there, but I acknowledge that it's attachment and that it's something that I have the ability to let go of. And I think that, you know, it's a journey. And if we can get to a place where we're not attached to all of these things and we can get out of the way, then maybe we can actually find a little bit of peace and just be in the moment and not be constantly getting out of the moment and looking back into it from outside and being the Enneagram five that we are and listening to podcasts like this one. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's, that's all I got. I think that's all I got too. Cool. Well, we did it. We made it to the end of season one. Season one. (laughs) Thank you all for listening this far. (laughs) Hopefully we have a season two. (laughs) (laughs) On to the next season. (laughs) Hey, it's Josiah, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode and you're the type of person who likes helping others, would you do us a favor and share it with other people like you? If you found value in this conversation, they will too. I also want to give a special thanks to our community members who shared their voice with us in this episode. If anything in this conversation has resonated with you, or if you have any further thoughts or questions, I want to invite you to join our community of other people like you and continue the conversation at Enneagram5.com.